0: listening to radio Sputnik. Sputnik telling the untold welcome to the open university of the airwaves with George Galloway, Galloway. only on Sputnik radio
1: 1.6 million people viewed last week's mother of all talk shows and i take my hat off to each and every one of you can we get to 2 million I never thought I'd find myself saying that on episode 70 of the Open University of the Airwaves. I'll be discussing the rumbustious week in Washington in which the Biden crime family turned out to be even uglier than the Trump crime family. What's going to happen in these last days of the US presidential election? We'll hear from the one and only Robbie Martin. And we'll be talking to a right wiseacre, Dominic Frisby, with whom I tend to work more and more closely on other projects. And we'll be talking to Dr. Ranjit Bra, who's got a new line on the coronavirus, on the lockdown. Prepare for a change of tack. And I think he's right. There you go. And we'll be talking, of course, about the events in France. Indeed, much of my monologue will be devoted to it. So fasten your seatbelts. This is Rock and Roll Radio. With pictures, it really is the mother of all talk shows.
0: Radio Sputnik. We speak your language. The mother of all talk shows. The only education you can get for free. This is Radio Sputnik. And
1: this is London, of course, but coming to you all over the world thanks to the wonders of the internet and sputniknews.com. If you're in the Washington, D.C. area, you can listen in crystal clarity on FM 105.5, other magic numbers there. Donald Trump, tune your radio right now because we're going to be talking about you and about Joe Biden. We're also on AM radio from Burning City to Burning City, right across the United States from coast to coast. And you can listen, of course, anywhere in the world on the aforementioned sputniknews.com. But 1.6 million of you last week watched as well as listened. It's hard to believe that I'm saying this, but I'm hoping that we can get to 2 million viewers by the end of this year. I bet you never thought you'd hear me saying that when I think that this show started out on talk sport. Yeah, that's right. 14 years ago. It's been on WBAI in Wall Street in New York, and now it is on this vast global platform. Thanks to RT and to SputnikNews.com. 1.6 million, utterly dwarfing any other show of its kind anywhere in the world ever in history, certainly in the Western world. And that's significant because it means that those looking for an alternative take on events, those looking to question more, those looking to get to the truth through the fog of propaganda, Uh, which is deliberately thrown up by those whose purpose in life is not to find the truth, not to illuminate the true reality of events, but to serve their corporate masters. Corporate masters, we have none. And so we can forensically shine a light where others would prefer that it remained in darkness. I'm going to talk for most of my monologue about the truly horrific individual act of terrorism, of murder, murder most foul, that took place this week in France, where a young school teacher, a young school teacher was beheaded, was beheaded in broad daylight, outside a school, in front of the whole school community, in front of the parents, in front of the children for the crime of offending somebody's religious sensibilities. This is even more of a paradox in France than it would be in other uh, Western European countries, because France is an avowedly secular country. It is constitutionally bound to secularism. It's also constitutionally bound to the principle of free speech. Not that it lives up to it, all of the time, but it is constitutionally bound to it. But mind you, so is the United States of America. This young man showed some of the pupils in his class uh, the controversial cartoons, including cartoons of the prophet Muhammad uh, that had been published in Charlie Hebdo and which has caused the shedding of a river of blood. Through France and elsewhere, but we're concentrating on France for the moment. He asked all of the Muslim children to leave the classroom before he showed them. He asked the Muslims to leave because, and I quote him, he didn't want to hurt their feelings. So he asked all of the Muslims to leave and he showed the other children the cartoons about which all the fuss was about. I wish those cartoons had never been drawn. I wish Charlie Hebdo had never published them. I wish that we could turn a page on this whole episode. But what I cannot accept and will not allow you to accept without having my say is the idea that people can be murdered over a cartoon. That people can be murdered for showing people a cartoon that has become one of the biggest political issues in France. After all, the teacher, Mr. Lampe, was actually teaching free speech. He was teaching the principles of free speech. And Mr. Patti, rather, could not possibly teach free speech without dealing with the elephant in the room, which is these cartoons an 18 year old Chechen political refugee born in Moscow, in exile in France with his extremist Islamist family and a huge community of extremist Islamist fanatics from Chechnya and indeed from elsewhere were given succor and comfort in France in the Republic A republic constitutionally bound to secularism, constitutionally bound to freedom of speech. They fled, they said, Russian persecution of the fundamentalist branch of Islamist fanaticism that their family adhered to. You might have thought, therefore, they felt a certain gratitude uh, to the French Republic for giving them safe haven from that President Putin and his government that was cracking down on the Islamist fanatics. But no, an 18 year old Chechen fanatic cut the head off young Mr. Patti, a school teacher in broad daylight. Now there have been other murders in France over Charlie Hebdo and other things. There have even been other beheadings about there has never been a murder or a beheading likely to have more extremely serious political consequences. Some of which I'm glad, some of which I'm sad, but no one should underestimate the impact on French society that this murder most foul has caused. It has, first of all, rallied the people of the French Republic behind their constitution and its secularism and its commitment to freedom of speech. Secondly, it has actually given critical mass to a very large number of people in France, usually rallying behind uh, what is called uh, the Front National, or whatever its current incarnation about the far right in France will be the main beneficiaries of this murder most foul. It has caused a rally behind the narrative that there are too many Muslims in France, that too many concessions have been made to them, and that new changes need to occur in France to deal with what is clearly a significant and present danger to the way of life of the French by an enemy within. This is serious stuff. And may very well lead to terrorist action by retaliation against the Muslim community in France. Some of these Changes of pace, changes of narrative will be positive. Others will be negative. But here's one that hasn't yet emerged, but must. And you'll only hear this here. This is not moral relativism. It's not look over there to avoid looking here. I want to see every last Al-Qaeda and ISIS, cadre fighter, terrorist, lying dead on the streets, wherever they are to be found. There is nobody, nobody on the left or on the right more committed than me to the crushing of this excrescence which purports to act for and speak for the Muslim people and their religion of Islam. I am a hammer of Al-Qaeda and ISIS. But I cannot avoid making this point, though some of you will not like it. You cannot have a situation where France and Britain and the United States is at war with these people on their own streets, but arming and funding them on other people's streets. That won't wash. Not least because if you've read Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, you'll already know that Frankenstein's monster was called a monster for a reason that once constructed, it was out with the control of its constructor. The same is true of the Islamist monster which Western countries, including France, have fashioned and funded and weaponized and sent to war in other people's countries, because once you've fashioned them, you no longer control them. And they end up not just there, but here. They end up not just on other people's streets, but on your streets. And that's exactly what happened to our children at the Manchester Arena, when a Libyan version of this Chechen monster came back to the country which had given him harbor to mutilate and murder our young children at an Ariana Grande concert. That's exactly what happened on London Bridge, on Westminster Bridge, on a hundred, a thousand other terrorist occasions. That's exactly what happened. The monsters that we had created in the 1980s in Afghanistan. For that's when this weaponization of Islamist fanaticism began. These monsters that we created are now murdering us. Murdering our school teachers. Murdering our children. Murdering anyone that they can reach with their knives, with their cars, with their bombs, with their guns. These monsters were made by us. Not us, not him, not our poor school teacher, not by the children in the Ariana grand concert, but us, our countries, our states, our governments. In Syria, France, Britain and the United States have fashioned an army of hundreds of thousands of people like that Chechen terrorist who now lies dead on the streets of France. And the beheading of that schoolteacher is repeated every day in Syria and has been for now almost an entire decade. Bread knives, axes, swords have severed the heads and carved open the chests and the eating of hearts has been the reality of Syria for almost 10 years. And we are the people who gave them the knives, gave them the swords. Us, France, and the United States of America. And so I'm appealing to the French government as it introspectively considers what it needs to change in the wake of Monsieur Patti's foul murder to consider this, that you can't back monsters abroad and expect that they will not be visiting you at home. In my famous lift conversation with William Hague, then the British Foreign Secretary, when he and I were trapped, imagine, together, just me and him in a lift in the Houses of Parliament. I told him this. It's not that you've not been wrong before. In fact, you've been wrong all your life. But you've never been insane before. But your policy of giving knives to every Islamist fanatic that you can recruit and sending them to fight in Syria is literally insane. Insane if it works because it will lead to an ISIS, Al-Qaeda state on the Mediterranean right next to Israel. What could possibly go wrong? And insane if it fails, because these people and their knives that we gave them will be back here before you can say Jack Robinson. And I said to him, they'll even be in this building, William, looking for you and looking for me. And so it came to pass. So the French, in their grief, have my... Unqualified sympathy and condolences. I myself feel bereft at the murder of this young man and at the scarring of the lives of all the young children that witnessed it. I myself say unequivocally that we have to crush this excrescence, we have to eliminate it. That's necessary, but it's not sufficient. We need to defend ourselves here against them at home, but we've got to stop supporting them abroad. You see, Russia was right to try and destroy Chechen Islamist fanaticism, and we should have supported them in it. Syria was right in seeking to resist ISIS and Al-Qaeda and the alphabet soup of Islamist extremism in Syria. And we should have supported them. And if we had, maybe some of our own children, our own citizens, would not today be in the cold earth. This is Moats episode 70. There's a poll already out. Which foreign militants should the West regret backing the most? A. ISIS in Libya. B. Chechens in Russia. C. Moderate rebels in Syria. You can vote now on my Twitter feed. There's this and much more to come over the next three hours or so. It's the mother of all talk shows. Call me. Come and have a go. If you think you're hard enough, don't bring up a false name. Come on air. Call me. And let's have this matter out.
2: Mm, let's
3: get ready to rumble! How, how you I know,
2: have you got enough
4: to
1: tell people the Plexit if, you have not, if you're not but, telling them the win of passion? That's 2016's argument, Michael. I'm no longer arguing with you about the merits of Brexit. I'm arguing with you about democracy, about the right of the majority to have their decision, their vote implemented. This
5: match will get red
6: hot. Not have a referendum, let them have a referendum, let them sort
1: it out amongst themselves. I want a referendum, Robert, I want a referendum. Let me put that in capital letters. If you think this year of 2020, which is shaping up already to be an annus miserabilis for the SNP, if you think this is your year, go ahead, come on, let's have it out. It's
6: on... But no, no George, it's not as simple as that, right? Have you seen the documentary about Cambridge Analytica and people oh. who work there? Have you looked at the I global know nothing about them.
1: I'm, I'm not interested but, but in them. Precisely, but I'm but not inter- you don't I'm know not, about them. I'm not interested in them, Bruce. Because it's all a red herring. Just like Russia Gay was a but, red but, herring. But you're up. Do you only want to hear voices that agree with you? Because if you do you're not clever enough to be at this open university of the airwaves. In fact, you need to go back to Remedial and learn something about what democracy and freedom of speech actually mean.
0: George Galloway and the mother of all talk shows. Join us at the College of Knowledge where there are no tuition fees.
1: What a week it's been in the United States of America as the rumbustious ending of the presidential election hoves into view now just a couple of weeks or so away. uh, The Joe Biden crime family turned out to be even uglier than the Donald Trump crime family. And both are as ugly as any crime family that you have ever seen in any gangster movie anywhere in the cinema or on television. Uh, Fat Tony, Mike uh, Pompeo, uh, when he's not roaming around Europe, uh, threatening sovereign governments in ancient countries, ancient allies of the United States, is back home in the United States, proselytizing for his boss, Donald Trump, who has increasingly taken to dad dancing, and very bad dad dancing. I can dad dance but nobody I've ever seen that dances as badly as Donald Trump. It seems that this cocktail uh, that he took in the Walter Reed Memorial Hospital has given him dancing shoes. And we thought that Ivanka and, uh, and Donald Junior and uh, what's the uh, son-in-law's name, Jared Kushner, we thought all these people uh, were bad until we learned of Hunter Biden. Hunter Biden, I don't know what the Ukrainians first saw in him, uh, sufficient to pay him a million dollars a year uh, to be on the board of an oil and gas company in the Ukraine, even though he'd been drummed out of the US military for drug abuse and had never worked in oil and gas before. I don't know what they saw in him, but it could have been, just could have been. I know it's out there. It could have been that his father was the vice president of the United States of America with governmental responsibility for the Ukraine. It could have been that. It might have been something entirely different. What we didn't know was that the same Hunter Biden was at the time Hustling for a $10 million bounty from the Chinese to work for China. A $10 million offer, he said, would be of interest to me and my family. His family, of course, including his father, the vice president of the United States. Now, this could just be influence peddling of a particularly egregious. And dirty type. Uh, But of course, Joe Biden has denied knowing anything about any of this. Now, I know he doesn't actually know where he is, what his name is, what he's running for, who his wife is, who his sister is. I know he knows nothing now. uh, But he wasn't as bad then. And he can't claim cognitive decline because he's running to be the most powerful man in the in the whole world with his finger on the nuclear trigger, which could bring about the end of humanity on this planet. So cognitive decline won't do. He has to come clean. And that's going to be difficult because Hunter Biden is so stupid that he handed his laptop into a computer repair shop and never went back to collect it, or to pay. And those emails are now in the hands of every journalistic enterprise in the United States, though only one of them was interested in it. If it had been Donald Trump Jr's laptop, uh, then it would have been filleted on the front page of every newspaper, and at the top of every news bulletin. But we're supposed to believe that this kind of corruption, for that's what it is, is not an issue if the Democrats do it. Just like me too didn't matter if you're blue. Just like a victim of rape doesn't have to be believed after all if the person she's alleging raped her is a Democrat. Now, don't get me wrong. I would not. If you put me up against the wall and threaten me with a firing squad, I would not, could not, and would never ask you to vote for either Joe Biden or Donald Trump. I just want to know the truth about both of them. And so far, until now, the majority of Americans don't know the truth about Joe Biden. Robbie Martin is the co-host of Media Roots Radio He's a filmmaker and he's one of our most welcome guests, always on the mother of all talk shows. Robbie, welcome back to the show. It has been uh, quite a week for Joe Biden. We'll, we'll come to Donald Trump in a minute. Uh, but how do you calibrate uh, this new, I don't know what we'd call it, uh, laptop gate, uh, hunter gate? How, how do you calibrate its impact? on the campaign in these last couple of weeks.
7: Well, thanks for having me on again, George. Um, to be completely honest, I, I don't know how much it's going to move the needle moving forward. Um, I, because, you know, the things that have leaked so far, unless they're sort of the most minimal uh, things that they have in there, uh, I feel like they'll need to add some extra spice to it to really move the needle Like uh, like some of the leaks did in 2016. So, what I've been seeing recently is there seems to be hints uh, that you know people some Trump surrogates are hinting at right now uh, that there's somehow some child pornography uh, involved in Hunter Biden's laptop or that Hunter Biden was involved in child pornography. So that seems to be the direction it could go in, and I'm and I'm curious to see how that will play out. Um, But it seems to me, George, that Joe Biden is essentially counting on uh, the acquiescent Western press to simply just not push him or question him too much on the barisma thing. I mean, we've seen two examples recently where when, when a reporter is actually brave enough, you know, I say brave kind of comically, because that's what all reporters should be doing is pressing Joe Biden on the barisma thing. Um, he completely dodges it, and the strangest thing that he's done that you touched on is say that he doesn't know anything about it. He hasn't even asked Hunter about what this job was that he had, where he was raking in millions of dollars. Um, so I, I, I just think it's strange on a certain level that there isn't somebody that's working on Joe Biden's team who is coaching him on how to deal with these questions. I mean, it really does seem, George, that he is just counting on no reporters, seriously pressing him on it, which just seems awfully strange and really is sort of an indictment on the US press and the Western press as a whole.
1: Yeah, uh, Bannon is one of those uh, surrogates, and he's spoken today. Uh, He's going on the Chinese thing because, well, he's got quite a Chinese takeaway going on himself. Perhaps he was was jealous that Hunter was uh, cornering some of the market. Uh, But if there's anything in what Bannon said today, uh, then exposure of very substantial financial transfers from China to the Biden family in an, in an epoch of heightened Sinophobia uh, in the United States over the virus. That might move the needle, no?
7: Uh, yeah, the China stuff could move the needle. Uh, but what's interesting about Bannon, as you said, uh, is that he has some strange dealings himself with China. This, this guy who's bankrolling him uh, some people may be unfamiliar with him, but he's a, he's a guy named Miles Guo, who first somehow also knew about the Hunter Biden laptop leaks a month ago. And he's currently under investigation by the FBI and SEC for uh, around $300 million of fraud for this media network that he took all this money from. So it is sort of fascinating uh, in that sense. And there's also a colleague of Steve Bannon's right now named J. Michael Waller. From the think tank the committee on the present danger which bannon helped found now j michael waller is actually calling out the think tank itself now he was a member of it and bannon for essentially propping up a fraudulent operation Now, i'm not saying that the laptop thing was fraudulent but that this guy who seems to be behind all this or he's involved in it with rudy giuliani and bannon does seem to be a really sketchy character now whether that calls into question the actual contents of the laptop probably not you know, perhaps maybe the origin of how it leaked. there you know there seems to be some missing pieces to that story. It's not quite clear. But I think for a certain sector of the United States voting population, it will move maybe move the needle a little bit. But I think most people are so locked into their own camps at this point that I think it's going to take something like really, really crazy to seriously move the needle from someone who was like, "I'm voting for Biden." But now I'm not going to because, you know, he's doing dealings with China. It does seem to be most of the sort of the right leaning part of the population right now has sort of dug their heels into the China stuff. The left side of the spectrum, the Democrats don't really seem to care too much. And I, I would say even the centrists don't either. But I, I could be wrong on that. But that's my sense of it.
1: Speaking of Giuliani, his daughter has just come out in Vanity Fair uh, for, uh, for Joe Biden. That was a bit of a surprise. Uh, in fact, the headline is, uh, my father is Rudy Giuliani, and I'm here to ask you uh, to vote for uh, Joe Biden. Where are we on celebrities, uh, Robbie? Uh, which celebrities are lined up uh, behind Biden and which behind Trump? I see Ice Cube has melted into the, into the Donald Trump uh, camp. Uh, what can you tell us about the others? Film stars, big personalities.
7: Well, that's a good question. I mean, it seems like the same film stars and big people who are who are sort of already in, you know, committed to a, a right wing ideology like James Woods, like Kevin Sorbo. Um, people like that are definitely, you know firmly in the pro-Trump camp. you have like John Voigt. And these people have sort of long time, you know, been longtime Republican celebrities. Uh, but I'd say just like always, George, I'd say the overwhelming majority of Hollywood. Um, is in the Biden camp. I mean, we saw some celebrities, you know, like Mark Ruffalo, some Hollywood celebrities who are more pro-Bernie, you know, back when the primaries were still going. But of course, all that got shored up, you know, as soon as Biden became the primary, uh, the chosen, (laughs) chosen victor, uh, those celebrities mostly just lined up behind Biden. I mean, we're even seeing the same effect to some extent, even among sort of the left Bernie podcast scene as well. I am I do a podcast myself so I could sort of see this evolution happening where a lot of those people are also lining up behind Biden, maybe not saying you need to vote for Biden this election, but just saying, like, it's probably the better choice. You know, they're, it's, they're sort of presenting as a lesser of two evils. But I do think, you know, as it gets close to the election, you do see that coalescence of... um of the, sort of the herding the sheep and the people who are getting behind Biden. And, and it's, I would say, the overwhelming majority, 95 percent of Hollywood, is definitely uh, behind Joe Biden at this point.
1: Now, let's turn to uh, Donald Trump, Robbie. Uh, am I right in saying his, his personal behavior is becoming uh, more and more eccentric? I mean, it's been, a, <laughs> it's been many years I've been watching him, but I never saw him dance. Now I see him dance every day. Uh, on some tarmac or some uh, platform uh, or another. He seems to have had a new lease of life after the Walter Reed experience. It's not life as we know it, but it's a new lease of life. What do you say?
7: Yeah, he does seem to be acting quite uh, more eccentric than usual um, after his little hospital stint. Um, know At first I thought maybe it's the steroids. You know, but maybe, maybe it's maybe at some, uh, you know, on some level, he's kind of thinking, well, if I lose, then maybe I don't really have to worry too much about all these responsibilities that I had. Because one might be demob happy. Yeah, because one thing you know, it's interesting. One of his main right-wing critics who keeps going after him is Ann Coulter, and one of the things she keeps she has brought up about him for several years is that he's lazy. And, uh, you know, that might be one character trait of Donald Trump that we're not looking at enough here that he does seem to be pretty lazy in regards to actually following through on the things he says he's going to do. So I, I would say that for someone like him, I mean, you know, maybe it, it is it really is a taking a great toll on his ability to just enjoy life. Um, I, so I don't know. I mean, I'm totally, you know, armchair analyzing him here, uh, but I don't you know. I see him more as, um, as sort of a, <laughs> as sort of a Sergeant Slaughter type of person. I mean, he really seems to enjoy the publicity, uh, the you know the cameras. Um, so I could see him just wanting to go, you know, into back into Hollywood, as crazy as that sounds. After this, you know, everybody hates him now, but you know, if he gets out of the presidency now, he'll have a very lucrative. TV contract, several TV contracts being you know sort of offered to him, and I think we also need to consider that that regardless of how much the entertainment industry hates him, they will be willing to pay hundreds of millions of dollars to, be, to get him back on television.
1: Uh, he might even be able to start paying tax uh, he, yeah. he, he may actually make some money as opposed to the money he pretended to make, but didn 't uh, in the in the past finally and i 'm always grateful for your time, Robbie. Um, What's your best guess now? I know a week's a long time in politics, and it's two weeks or more uh, to the election. Uh, But if I was forcing you to make a prediction right now, what would it be?
7: Oh, geez, I, I guess I have to still say that Trump is probably going to win. That's been my prediction for a long time. I've been trying to ignore the polls as much as possible because of the misdirect head fake of last, you know, the last election where everybody, including myself and Abby, were convinced that Hillary was going to win. So this year I am taking I am zooming out and not taking the polls as seriously as I did four years ago. And I think it's pretty likely that regardless of how crazy Trump has acted, regardless of his handling of the pandemic, I think he still has this election. And I think if we especially if we see sort of a Pizzagate flavored spin on the Hunter laptop, uh, you know, in these next few weeks, which I predict might may actually happen.
1: Thanks very much indeed, Robbie. Give my regards, please, to Abby and the new baby. Uh, Wonderful uh, to see their pictures uh, on uh, on Twitter Uh, and my very best to you, Robbie. You're a great star. Thanks very much indeed for joining us on the mother of all talk shows. That poll's still running. Let's uh, refresh it, please, Chris, and uh, see uh, which regret. Uh, It's a pity we can't have a box that says all of the above. Now, um, uh, for those of you who were lucky enough uh, to watch me and Jimmy Dore and other star guests last Wednesday on Mote's Midweek Extra, Here's a little flavour of it uh, coming up, and then I'll tell you how you can watch this Wednesday. I promise you, it's the best dollar you will ever spend. Let's take a look at this little promo. I'm going to tell you, you'll be going rather perilously close. To the button. It's
8: a walking, demented death rattle, okay? So Joe Biden can barely finish his sentence if he's not hopped up on speed and Adderall. And when he's not, you see he can't even finish his sentence. And this is the guy they're telling us is the antidote to Donald Trump. So what-
1: You're advocating for any man to be allowed to identify as a woman and use women's spaces. And I will not agree with you because I'm standing why up for women's rights. F- now, George, why the f- Ward 5 No foul language yes. Donald Trump was elected to Drain that
8: swamp uh, But he hasn't done that, has he? Really time is going to tell And I think we're talking about in a matter of months Not years If people at a very high level are going to get Prosecuted for crimes against humanity Okay Mr. Fascist no problem. You go right ahead
1: Mr. Fascist not Ratchet! Mm-hmm. Ward 5 Ryan and Milton Keynes had to use a different f-word you didn't do yourself any good there
3: Ryan Wednesday nights just got a whole lot wilder have something to say? do you
0: disagree with George? then call us now and give us your view
1: It was pretty wild, actually, and that button did get pushed more than once. Uh, We actually had to clean up that promo because, well, there was blood on the canvas and blood on my nose, and I left blood on a few other people's noses. It was uh, definitely bare knuckle. Uh, So if you want to see it on Wednesday, every Wednesday at 8 p.m., then you need to go to Patreon, to my page on Patreon. You need to sign up because if you don't, well, you'll never know. What you are missing. Jeff is in London on the terror attack in France. Let's hear from Jeff. Go ahead, Jeff. Hi, George. Uh, nice to speak
4: to you. And you um, I-, I meant to say um, I agree and disagree somewhat. I, of course, the attack in France is barbaric and it has to be condemned by everyone. The only thing I worry about um, is this sort of Charlie Hebdo culture. And uh, what happened to Charlie Hebdo was equally barbaric, of course. And it's useful, as you say, to bear in mind that these people who commit these kind of acts uh, are not people who can be reasoned with. They're not normal people. They're, they're not Muslims who are angry. Uh, they are, as you say, something more close to a sort of fascist ideology. Mm-hmm. Um, However, and although I do believe that Shirley Hebdo has every right in a free society to print the kind of cartoons it does, I have to say that I'm frankly disgusted by them. Um, I've seen a lot of what has been on uh, Shirley Hebdo's pages comparing black politicians to apes and their famous cartoon where they mocked the people who were massacred in Egypt with uh, when they had the famous cartoon of the the guy holding the Quran and it says ha 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 you know the Quran can't save you from bullets I mean this is this isn't satire George this is sadism
1: uh, well uh, Jeff uh, let me stop you for a minute I'll let you back in I did say at the beginning uh, that uh, I'm I'm flying no flags for uh, the Charlie Hebdo uh, style uh, or content. Uh, I wish these things had never been published. Uh, I think that they are not worth the river of blood that has occurred. But as you yourself said, if you don't want to live in secular France, don't go and live there. Don't seek political asylum there. Don't ask the French people for succor and comfort, and then murder them uh, because they live the life that they choose to leave. That's the key point, isn't it, Jeff? Yes, yes, I agree. And it's, like
5: I
4: say, uh, um, I appreciate that, obviously. And it's, it's also important, as I say, that we don't, we don't allow these monsters to ventriloquize the grievances of the Muslim community, because the Muslim community, by and large, doesn't want anything to do with them. Um, Yes, they can appeal to historic injustices against Muslims, but they're not um, worthy to... They're not Edward Said. They're not, um, you know, this isn't Anas Al-Tikriti or Tariq Ramadan. You know, these aren't worthy people. To be ventriloquizing the grievances of the Muslim community, so let, as you know, it's totally correct to say, let's not allow these people to pose as victims. They're monsters. At the same time, I do worry. Um, I mean, I know they have this thing about freedom of expression in France, and you know, I support freedom of expression, of course, but there are some pretty—it's really very, very difficult for me to understand because, but. If you look at some of the laws, they do seem to support freedom of expression. But when it comes to certain things to do with Muslims, for example, like the right of Muslim women to dress how they see fit, the French state
1: is actually pretty
4: oppressive when it comes
1: to that. Yeah, it's militantly secular, uh, almost as if secularism was itself a religion. Uh, The only thing I would uh, take issue with you there, Jeff, uh, and I think you'll agree with me, actually, on reflection, is that it's not just historic grievances. Uh, that uh, France and other Western countries uh, have engendered amongst Muslims, but contemporary ones. Uh, there are uh, grave injustices going on right now in Yemen, in Libya, in Afghanistan, in Iraq, in Syria, uh, in, uh, in Palestine. These are all uh, reasons for radicalization amongst uh, Muslim youth. Uh, across the Western world. And they're fully entitled, indeed expected actually, uh, to be angry uh, about these things. But what we cannot have is violence. We cannot have murder. We cannot have an 18 year old Chechen deciding uh, that uh, that a school teacher's head has to be cut off uh, because he is angry at the French teacher doing something which is perfectly legal in France to do. It's the murder that's the crime, not the uh, not the act of the teacher. Last word to you, Jeff.
4: Yes, I do agree with that, actually. Um, and I think... Um, uh, I, I just think it's... Um, I'm not saying what... You know, for example, I'm not saying that the French laws, sartorial laws on what people are allowed to wear are in any way equivalent to murder. I just think that France puts itself at a disadvantage. In this country, for example, and God knows, you know, there's a lot wrong uh, in this country. But in this country, we do at least have, I think, a better claim to leave people be and allow them to wear what they want yeah. to wear and do what they want to do. Yeah, you know what I mean? You're, I think France you're puts itself at a
1: disadvantage there. You're, you're absolutely right, Jeff. Uh, if you think Britain is racist, you've never lived in France. Uh, but the laws in France are a matter for the French people alone, as indeed the laws in Britain are now, or shortly, will be a matter for the British people alone. Jeff, thanks for the call, an excellent one to kick off the show. Here's Michael in Minneapolis, always the voice of common sense from Minnesota. Go ahead, Michael.
5: Hey, George, how are you doing today? Good,
1: nice to hear from you,
5: sir. All right, well, thanks for having me on. So I wanted to ask you a a question today. I've been sort of alarmed. You know, the Hunter Biden story came out and it was mostly a rehash of stuff we knew already. And and that, and I'm, you know, I'm actually, you know, corruption is corruption. It sort of is what it is. We see it, you know, like you said, as much in the Trump family and the Biden family and in every sort of ruling family in our country. Um, But what really alarmed me uh, was the social media reaction. So the New York Post, which is, you know, again, one of, is is not a, a an outlet I like particularly. It's a Murdoch outlet, but it is one of the you know the oldest uh, news outlets in the United States. It was founded by Alexander Hamilton himself. You know, published this Hunter Biden story, and within hours, uh, Twitter and Facebook were not allowing users to disseminate the story. And not only were, on Twitter were you not allowed to post the story, but you weren't even allowed to send it as a private direct message. To someone else, and on top of that, they started banning uh, people who were trying, who continued to try to post the story. They banned their account entirely, including
1: President Trump's press secretary.
5: Yes, Kaylee McEnany. Yes, yeah. They, 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 Yes, they banned her from Twitter, which is, I mean, and which is an absolutely alarming thing. And you know, when you think of the way people consume news, this these days. I think like two thirds of American adults consume uh, news on social media. And also the fact that, you know, uh, these legally, uh, these entities are they are protected. So they are protected from things that are as uh, things that are published on their platform. So it's not they can't claim, oh, if we publish something false, you know, they can come after you know, somebody could come after us and sue us. That's you know, that they are they, they are entirely um, they are entirely sheltered from any kind of you know, legal action. Yeah. And so it, it felt a little bit through the looking glass when all of a sudden you, know, you saw Democratic partisan on every you know, news outlet in America coming out and saying that these giant tech giants have the right to censor their platforms however they'd like because they're private companies. Which you know is the sort of thing that Ayn Rand would say. It's yeah. not the kind of thing. The
1: private, uh, the private. Yeah, I mean you're absolutely correct, Michael. They're private companies uh, with uh, with the protection of the state from the normal consequences uh, of broadcasting or publishing uh, uh, things that are not true or are uh, are in, indeed deliberate lies. Uh, they cannot be sued for their content in the way that a newspaper or a television station, radio station can be. So they have actually protections from uh, from the state, which is the organized public or ought to be, uh, but they can ban the public uh, if they don't like it. It's the double standards, isn't it, Michael? That, that they could run Russiagate for four years. Uh, they can run the fake steel dossier for four years uh, without a shred of evidence or truth, as it turned out. Uh, but if you publish or retweet something about Hunter Biden, well, that can't be done because it's unverified.
5: Well, I- exactly, George. I mean, you hit it on the head. I was actually I was going to bring up the Steele dossier myself, which, as you know, turned out to be and you know essentially entirely false, and yep. just a you know a creation of sort of anti-Trump propaganda. And the thing is, you know, what they don't realize is they're they're fortifying Trump when they do these things because Trump can point and say that oh, it's fake news media. Well, of course, people believe him because he can point to this this kind of stuff. I think that uh, you know even. Um, even further, what's alarming is when Twitter put out an explanation of why they were going to do this, they tried to justify it by saying that they have a policy against publishing hacked materials. I would say, well, if you're going to ban hacked materials, then, then you can go all the way back to the Pentagon Papers, to WikiLeaks, to Snowden. You can go to every major you know, investigative journalism uh, piece, piece of investigative journalism that's ever happened. And you could ban everything just as you want, and so it's—I mean, it's clearly. You know, I'm no fan of Donald Trump, um, but but it is clearly this uh, sort of the tech giants are act, acting in sort of a partisan, democratic way on behalf of Joe Biden. It's a, it's a really you know a terrifying thing, you know. And and as you know, as as even as uh, Julian Assange is being held on these ridiculous charges, you know, it it does seem like like the tech the government and tech monopolies are moving in concert yeah. to sort of ban investigative journalism. Yeah, and in, concert
1: is the, and uh, yeah in concert is the operative phrase. Uh, they are acting in concert with the Democrats. If Trump gets back in, uh, they'll pay a terrible price, I think. But for us who are with, neither with Biden nor with Trump, we need our own Twitter. We need our own Facebook. We need a uh, hundred Facebooks, a hundred Twitters. Uh, these tech giants must be cut down to size, yes, but the, uh, but the need is pluralism. The need is a thousand flowers blooming. Thanks, Michael, as always, for a great call. Uh, let me squeeze in Mo in Birmingham before the uh, news. Mo, welcome. Hello there. Good evening, Mr Galloway. Good evening, sir. Go you? ahead. Yes. Uh, my question to you is What do you think about
9: the uh, annexation currently taking place in the West Bank? Is it,
1: uh, has it, has something happened today? Hello? Oh, what a pity. I, I, I mean, unless something's just happened, the annexation is currently uh, on hold, uh, conditional on the uh, so-called peace agreement with the UAE uh, and uh, and Bahrain. Uh, but uh, I'll get further and better on that. Maybe Mo will get back through. Maybe uh, Mo knows something. Uh, I don't. The poll, uh, ISIS in Libya are a 64%. That's the one that we should regret the most, according to the voters so far. Chechens in Russia, just 8%. And Moderate rebels in Syria, 28%, up one. So you can vote on my Twitter feed. Let me give you some responses to the poll. Uh, Ollie says, ISIS in Libya destroyed the country, committed atrocities, which are still hidden, got away with all of it so far. And Wendy says, don't regret any in the slightest. That's interesting, Wendy. Why don't you call and explain that point of view? So you don't regret us backing ISIS in Libya, Chechens in Russia, or moderate rebels in Syria. Boy, would I like to know why, Wendy. Come and have a go if you think you're hard enough. And Filza says, the West and regret don't go side by side. And Stephen says, I would say all three. I remember when the Western media shed loads of tears for the Chechen so-called rebels. Yeah, they're crying for something else now. And Arthur says, regret implies a degree of self-awareness and conscience. Take a look at the leaders of the free world over these last 20 years. Only 20, Arthur. And Joanne says, violence is a sign of weakness, especially when inflicted upon unarmed civilians and against dissenting opinions. And Mark says, the US has troops in a thousand countries, spends over four trillion a year. Well, that must be fake news because there aren't a thousand countries. Uh, Johnny says they're all the same, literally the same men. And on the Paris attack, JP Roll says practice free speech in Trafalgar Square or even listen to it and a copper will bash you with his baton. And Stephen says need more democracy in the form of more elections in France. And Akbor says maybe if the French didn't support terrorists in Iraq and Syria, the terrorists wouldn't be attracted to France. Well, I'm not sure that that follows, uh, my friend. I'm really not sure that that follows. France did not uh, join the Iraq war. Hasn't done them much good in terms of the uh, wrath of the head chopping heart eaters. And Astri says, George, you're spot on with France, the UK and US's funding of terrorists. And Vic says, it's a vicious circle. Terror breeds terror and on COVID, Annie says 5 million kids have died during the COVID-19 crisis. 1.5 million is expected to die from the first three months of lockdown on top. Do you seriously think lockdown is to save people? Sorry Annie, these numbers are complete nonsense. Uh, US and Trump, Jack says Theresa May's dancing was worse, thought she was having a fit. But alas, no. And Aussie says the US government is corrupt to its core. Democracy is dead. The empire is crumbling under its lies. And Stephen says Trump gives billions in tax breaks to the ultra-rich in a massively unequal society. And we are whinging about Hunter Biden. I'm not sure if whinging is the right word, Stephen. I'm not sure if it's a whinge to say that it is an utter obscene disgrace uh, that the son of the Democratic Party's candidate for president is a corrupt crook and that there are reasons to believe that his father, though he may not any longer remember his name, knew about it at the time. I'm not sure that's really whinging. I think it is Uh, Invective that actually is wholly justified and I'm ready to take you on. If you'd like to have a whinge, you know my telephone number. And Bob says Biden was a bad choice for candidate. He's running on Adderall. It's going to accelerate his physical mental decline. If he wins, I don't think he'll be president for very long before Kamala takes over. Now, Dominic Frisbee joins me right after the news. Here's the phone number, 02077 982 If you're in Britain, that's 02077982255. 982 And you can call us from the US on 001 757 744 4480. Or you can tweet us at George Galloway at RTUK News. But let me take the news with Jimmy Law.
0: The mother of all talk shows. The only education you can get for free. Radio Sputnik. We speak your language. Find us
10: at sputniknews.com.
11: Sputnik News. Armenia and Azerbaijan have accused each other of violating a humanitarian ceasefire in the disputed region of nagorno karabakh Both sides had agreed a truce at the start of midnight local time last night, but an Armenian defense ministry spokeswoman said Azerbaijan broke the ceasefire after just four minutes by firing artillery shells and rockets. Azerbaijan later said Armenia had broken the truce after two minutes. Both countries signed a Russian-brokered ceasefire last Saturday. However, clashes have continued despite that accord. A senior British scientific adviser has claimed that more than one coronavirus vaccine will be available in the first quarter of 2021. Sir Jeremy Farrar, who sits on the government's SAGE Advisory Committee, said, quote, I think in the first quarter of next year we will have vaccines. We'll have more than one vaccine. It's unlikely the jabs will be administered before Christmas, which for our thinks will be a tough one this year and not like a normal Christmas for almost everybody. But he is expecting data on vaccines in November and December, pointing out that the UK has a portfolio of potential options. Thousands of NHS staff will be trained to administer a vaccine, with inoculations potentially beginning soon after Christmas. In a briefing to MPs on Monday afternoon, England's Deputy Chief Medical Officer, Professor Jonathan Van Tam, said it isn't a totally unrealistic suggestion that we could deploy a vaccine soon after Christmas, adding that such a development would have a significant impact on hospital admissions and deaths. Van Tam is said to be expecting third-stage results from the Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine by the end of November. Another multinational drug company, Pfizer, has apparently already manufactured several hundred thousand doses of a jab at a plant in Belgium. Greater Manchester's Labour Mayor Andy Burnham has called for wider support over the region's stance against stricter COVID-19 curbs, saying, quote, This is not just a Greater Manchester fight. Burnham said it was everyone's concern because everywhere could end up in tier 3 over winter. Leaders in the region have rejected a move to the highest alert level without more generous financial support. Government Minister Michael Gove responded, we hope to agree a new approach. But he accused Burnham of posturing and criticised what he described as the incoherence of politicians there and warned that if an agreement could not be reached, the government would look at having to impose restrictions. Michael Gove has also said that the door is still ajar for talks with the European Union over a post-Brexit trade deal, but only if it moves ground on key areas. Negotiations between the UK and the EU have stalled amid disagreements over fishing access and competition issues. The cabinet minister said the EU must speed up the negotiation process and offer the UK better terms. The EU has said it's prepared to intensify talks but would not agree a deal at any price. Gove has also been accused of being in cloud cuckoo land by Labour after he defended spending £7,000 a day on consultants brought in to work on the government's test and trace system. Asked if the fees were a good use of public money, Gove replied yes. Bolston Consulting Group were paid about £10 million for a team of around 40 consultants to do four months' work between the end of April and late August. A convicted murderer who helped thwart an attack on London Bridge will be considered for parole ten months early. Stephen Gallant, 42, was jailed for 17 years in 2005 for the murder of ex-firefighter Barry Jackson in Hull. He was on day release attending a prisoner rehabilitation event when he confronted Usman Khan with a narwhal tusk after the 28-year-old began stabbing people in November 2019. Gallant's parole board will decide whether he can be released early. A Minister of Justice spokesperson said the Lord Chancellor has granted Stephen Gallant a royal prerogative of mercy, reducing his minimum tariff by ten months in recognition of his exceptionally brave actions at Fishmongers Hall, which helped save people's lives despite the tremendous risk to his own. Khan, who killed Saskia Jones and Jack Merritt, was later shot dead by police. An 11th person has been arrested in France as authorities investigate the murder of French teacher Samuel Patty. The 47-year-old was beheaded on Friday near the school where he taught northwest of central Paris. Police have named the suspect who was shot dead as Abdullah A, an 18-year-old man born in Moscow of Chechen origin. As police approached him, he fired at them with an air gun. Officers returned fire, hitting him nine times. A 30-centimetre-long blade was found close by. No details have been given about the latest person detained by French authorities. Four close relatives of the suspect were arrested shortly after the killing. Six more were detained on Saturday, including the father of a pupil at the school and a preacher described by French media as a radical. Islamist. President Emmanuel Macron said the attack bore all the hallmarks of an Islamist terror attack and the teacher had been murdered because he taught freedom of expression. Torrential rain has caused a landslide in Vietnam that's killed at least 22 people days after another one killed 13. In the latest incident, rocks and earth slid down a mountain onto an army base after a week of continuous rain in Quang Tri province state-run Vietnam news agency said eight people were able to get away, but the others were thought to be trapped underneath mud. On Thursday, another landslide near to the Quang Tri region killed 13, 11 of whom were army officers. And finally, a key ally of Brazil's president has been arrested after anti-corruption officers discovered a wad of banknotes in the underpants that he was wearing. Police initially found 10,000 reals, which is around £1,380, inside a safe in Senator Chico Rodriguez's house during a search on Wednesday. He then asked if he could go to the bathroom and according to the police report, an officer noticed a large rectangular bulge under the senator's shorts as he walked off. Found inside his underwear, near his buttocks, were stacks of money that totaled 15,000 reals, the report stated. When asked a further three times whether he had any additional cash stowed in his underpants, the senator angrily shoved his hand into his underwear to retrieve more stacks of bills, totaling £2,500. Rodriguez, who is President Bolsonaro's deputy leader in the Senate, has now been suspended. And that's the latest here on Sputnik News. I'm Jamie Lowe.
0: You're listening to Radio Sputnik Sputnik. 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 Telling the Untold Welcome to the Open University of the Airwaves with George Galloway. Galloway only on Sputnik Radio
1: now which foreign militants should the west regret backing the most a isis in libya b the chechens in russia c the moderate rebels so-called they're called moderate rebels because they only eat half your heart the moderate rebels in syria you can vote on my twitter feed now dominic frisbee is a likely lad i must tell you a great writer a great talker and a fine fellow, and so much so, uh, he and I may well be working together on a project which cannot yet be revealed uh, in the near future. And so I was glad that he could come on tonight to talk about two things. First of all, he has produced an audiobook of rare brilliance. Uh, it's called The Shadow Punk Revolution, and it's a sci-fi rock drama about invisibility. Now, that, is A Fertile Imagination. It's written by Dominic and his co-writer, Brendan Connolly. But I also want to talk to him about one of the best articles I've read uh, for a long time, Wokeness, The Return of Medieval Madness, in which he takes us down the path back uh, to the days of the original witch hunt and compares them to the present. I've actually caught him in his car, so apologies if the quality of the picture isn't great. I'm not yet sure if it is or not. Dominic, welcome to the show. Yeah, that's Hi, all right. Hi George, how's it now, going? You look uh, windswept and interesting, that's, uh, that's fine. <laughs> and it's a lovely moody. car. Moody. It's a lovely car, yeah, moody. Um, let's talk about your, uh, your new audio book, uh, because I've now had the chance uh, to review it myself. And it is, oh, a, work, it is a work of real brilliance. But I'll let you introduce the idea behind it and the uh, main plot
12: lines, if you would. Well, thanks very much, George. And uh, the main idea is that um, I, we're having this incredible boom in audio at the moment. And I think it's because, like, the human brain absorbs words better through the ear. And we only invented writing as a means to transport information, to transfer information over distance and over time, beyond the scope of the human voice, if you like. And even so, I still think people absorb words better through the ear than they do the page. And with all this new technology and podcasting and audio books and everything else, I wanted to, you know they say that radio is the most visual medium and i wanted to and and i think this boom in audio is happening because people are almost rediscovering how well the the human mind absorbs information through the ear and format is sort of determined by the media available at the time. And the album, the old concept album of the 1970s was one of my favorite formats. Things like the War of the Worlds, The Wall, Sgt. Pepper's uh, Lonely Heart Band, these kind of things. Um, And the album sort of died a death because format changed with things like iTunes and Spotify and people started listening to singles. But I've got this idea of rediscovering the old concept album format. But through an audio book, so we made this audio book to music, and I've got this fantastic rock guitarist called Asaf Zohar, brilliant, and I who plays the rock guitar, and so it's a story told to music. And then I wanted to do something about invisibility. I had this idea. I, I, I'm very interested in the subject of privacy. Um, I wrote the first book about Bitcoin, I'm very interested in about that. And so I, we created this sort of metaphor for privacy and Bitcoin and everything else. And we set the story 10 years in the future. And we started it in rural Devon, uh, North Devon, the most overlooked part of the UK. And we had this idea that these these criminals are using invisibility coats to protect against state and corporate invasion of privacy. But they're using these invisibility coats to, to, to push um, damaging drugs through the local areas. And then our hero is a sort of police officer and he discovers that people have been using these invisibility coats and he goes on a big mission to find out who invented them on the first, in the first place. And that's kind of the story really. That's uh, it's a, and great, it's, a it's a
1: great story, but it's a great metaphor also. And these invisibility cloaks, they, they stop them being uh, picked up by CCTV and so on.
12: They do, they, they, they protect. That's the great irony of Bitcoin. Um, You know, it is a private money, it's apolitical money, it gives you protection against government debasement of money. But at the same time, you know, some people use Bitcoins to sell drugs, to sell illegal goods on the internet and so on. So it's a force for good, but it's a force for evil at the same Mm -hmm. time. And the idea of these coats is that they capture that same, um, I don't know what the word is, that same uh, dilemma. It's a wonderful cover, actually. Can we
1: show it, Chris? Can we show the cover? Yeah, it is uh, absolutely ghostly. It's wonderful. The Shadow Punk uh, Revolution, a sci-fi rock drama about invisibility with music, brilliant music, by the way, uh, from Asad um, Zohar. Uh, and it's George. narrated, of course, in the, in the uh, dark brown voice
12: of Dominic Frisbee. Go on, Dom. <laughs> I was just going to say, the, the original um, text, Uh, uh, coders who were behind Bitcoin back in the 90s. They were a a bunch of, of, I suppose you'd call them uh, techno-anarchists or even techno-activists, but they called themselves the cypherpunks. And they thought that that they could solve many of the world's evils through writing code. And so the, the term a shadow punk is a sort of little nod in their direction. A homage. Uh, is is, uh,
1: you're, uh, you're, of course, like me, uh, a big uh, friend and fan of uh, the legendary Max Kaiser, who was on the show a couple of weeks ago, uh, and uh, you wrote the book on Bitcoin. Uh, plug that
12: now. I wasn't going to ask you about it, but it's another great piece of work. Oh, well, thank you. I was very lucky. I, I, I wrote that book in 2013, 2014. And, yeah. Um, it was, it was the first book on Bitcoin from a recognized publisher. It wasn't the first book about Bitcoin, but the first from a proper publisher. And it, it did very well. But it came out in uh, what we call the first crypto winter, the first sort of really horrible bear market for Bitcoin. So it never got a, an international distribution. It was only ever really sold in the UK. But a lot of people who've read it still say it's probably the best it is. Bitcoin. Uh, but, but, uh, uh,
1: and yeah. this article of yours is undoubtedly the best. the return of medieval madness. How much of what went on in the Middle Ages and early modern periods do we look back on with abhorrence and a certain amount of perplexity? Burning witches at the stake, lynch mobs, self-flagellation. What possessed people to do such things, we wonder. Well, do we wonder? Because actually that happens on a daily
12: basis on social media. It's incredible, isn't it? I mean, so many of these medieval practices are alive and well today. Um, it's difficult to know where to start because there are so many. But you know, lyn- lynch mobs. I mean, somebody says something wrong on Twitter, and oh my God, you know, J.K. Rowling making her comments about transphobia, or you having the wrong opinion about Brexit, or you know, maybe you go and do an interview and you're not very good on that interview, and or you're Boris Johnson or you're Jeremy Corbyn, and. But just lynch mob after lynch mob. And they won't rest until they've had you burnt at the stake. And more than that, they want you excommunicated. They want you, you know, excommunication was the practice of banning people from taking communion. But once you're excommunicated, you are no longer welcome in society. You are effectively cancelled. Well, cancel culture, today's cancel culture, is... The old equivalent of, of excommunication. And it's always for uttering heresies. You know, you say you have the wrong opinion about, you know, whether it's Brexit or climate change or Black Lives Matter or whatever the the issue of the day is, if you've got the 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 wrong opinion, you know, the, the, the heretical opinion, you get excommunicated. And it it can happen, you could be a scientist. You could be a comedian, you could be a politician, you could be a lawyer. It doesn't matter where you, what um, area of life you're in. Once you get canceled, that's your career ruined. And it, it's incredible that it still goes on. And I mean, what, what other types of, we've got this idea of, in the old days, the richest man who ever lived was a chap called Jacob Fugger. And he, made, and he lived in the Holy Roman Empire. And he made most of his money by selling indulgences. And I compare that to, you know, carbon credits. We have this huge culture of publicly professing our virtue, virtue signaling. And, you know, it went on like mad in medieval times. And I think it's because in medieval times, it was obviously religion. But today, Christianity is is not the same power that it was on a relative basis back then. And, you know, things like, climate change, the NHS, all these various other causes that people take out, they've almost replaced the role that religion once had in our lives. Now, uh, here's the rub. Uh, The
1: people who are most militant uh, in proselytising the cancel culture uh, are highly selective uh, about whom and what they cancel. I touched earlier with uh, Robbie Martin on this. For example, the woman that accused Joe Biden of raping her, she's been non-personed. Her allegations were not believed. Uh, She was not included in Me Too. In fact, exactly the opposite of the culture, uh, the prevailing culture of so-called liberals and progressives today Uh, moved into action. Uh, Instead of the woman being believed, Biden was believed. Instead of Biden being ostracized, subject to rigorous uh, cross-examination, it was the person making the allegations who was. And ditto the corruption of Hunter Biden. The entire, the nabobs of the big tech companies, Uh, including Nick Clegg from uh, this parish of Westminster, (laughs) moved into action to suppress uh, the news of corrupt practices on the part of the Biden uh, family. Whereas if it had been a laptop belonging to Donald Trump Jr. uh, containing pictures of him with a crack pipe, pictures of him up to... Uh, multiple actions or uh, acts of no good, it would have been published everywhere. They're hypocrites, is what I'm saying. On top of all the
12: uh, all the other things. Oh, George, I couldn't agree more. The 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 double standards, and I think that's one of the reasons that there's just so much anger at the moment. You know, is is this double standard that that keeps operating where? you know, there's one set of rules for one group of people and another set of rules for other people. And until people are all treated equally, you, you just can't give people um, special privileges on the grounds of, you know, what their opinions are or, or what sex they are or what race they are, whatever. You know, everyone should be treated equally. And it's patently obvious at the moment that people aren't being treated equally. And I think that's a, must be a key reason why there's so much anger and, and rebellion in the air. It's incoherent, though, the anger, uh,
1: isn't it? It has no political expression, really. Uh, the the uh, Labour and Tory front benches, despite all the bluster, uh, are two cheeks of the same backside. Uh, you couldn't slip sixpence between uh, uh, Starmer and, and Johnson.
12: Um, there's, no, I nowhere, I mean, George, there's nowhere for that anger to go. You're, you're, I see you as a sort of old-school left winger and you know from the sort of Benite yeah. school of, of, of left wingers and I, I'm a libertarian and you know so I believe in you know small l- less government and more individual responsibility and so on but you know who do you vote for as, as someone from your school of thought and your school of thought is maybe 20-25% of the country yeah. and my school of thought is the same. Twenty twenty-five percent, but you know, it, once upon a time, I probably would have voted for Margaret Thatcher. Although I don't agree with her on, I think you and I are closer together on many social issues than I would be with Thatcher. But economically, I, I would agree with a lot of what Thatcher did. But anyone who sympathises with Thatcher or anyone who sympathises with Tony Benn, where's your political voice? Yeah. Because you know, whoever you vote for, you just get this sort of limp-wristed, crony capitalist, social democrat.
1: I disassociate myself with the limp-wristed bit because that'll only get me into trouble. Dominic Frisby, thanks for joining us here on the mother of all talk shows. And I look forward to talking with you uh, in the week. Dominic Frisby, uh, author on Spiked of Wokeness, The Return of Medieval Madness, as well as his wonderful new uh, audio book, a sci-fi rock drama about invisibility. Uh, It's called the Shadow Punk Revolution. I tell you, it's actually terrific. Uh, If it doesn't immediately appeal to you, because it didn't immediately appeal to me, trust me, it's brilliant. Which foreign militants should the West regret backing the most? A, the ISIS in Libya, B, Chechens in Russia, C, moderate rebels in Syria. You can vote now on my Twitter feed. Let me take a 60-second break, and I'll be right back. With that was the week.
0: Radio Sputnik. Want
10: to talk? Get in touch with us at radio at SputnikNews.com. We are talking.
0: 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. You are listening. We give you the most essential out of the endless information space.
10: Radio Sputnik. Telling the untold. Radio Sputnik. We speak your language. Find us at sputniknews.com. Hello, America. It is me.
6: Joe Biden.
3: I think I'm not
6: reading a tele tele de- prompter.
0: I'm perfectly capable of speaking for myself. Very so,
3: Myself. <imitates foam> <ringing> and Radio Sputnik. Radio Sputnik.
0: George Galloway, and the mother of all talk shows. Join us at the College of Knowledge, where there are no tuition fees. Now,
1: that was the week that was. This is where I look back at what happened during this week in history. This was the week when the man they called the African Che Guevara was assassinated. Thomas Sankara, the president of Burkina Faso, was a champion of equality and women's rights until he went down in a hail of bullets. Fired predictably by his own comrades, but coordinated behind the scenes by the former colonial powers. He came to power in a popular revolution in 1983. Within four years, Burkina Faso, formerly Upper Volta, reached food sufficiency, due in large part to land redistribution and a series of irrigation and fertilization programs instituted by Sankara's government. During this time, production of cotton and wheat increased dramatically. First priorities after taking office were feeding, housing and giving medical care to the people who desperately needed it. Sankara also launched, wait for it, a mass vaccination program in an attempt to eradicate polio, meningitis and measles. This is the week also a hundred years ago when the American journalist and author, the man who wrote 10 days that shook the world, the remarkable book about the Russian Revolution died. He was just 32. His death was also preventable. Typhus killed him, but because of a blockade of the young Soviet Republic, life-saving medicines were not available. He is buried today and I've visited uh, the very place in the wall of the Kremlin in Moscow. Um, He was a very significant influence in my life. Uh, The book, 10 Days That Shook the World, reads like a Hollywood movie and indeed became one uh, at the hands of, rather expensively, uh, my uh, one-time friend, Warren Beatty. Warren Beatty made this film and made himself and many other people considerably poorer as a result it was a very long film it was a very wonderful film if like me you're interested in the people and the events uh, that are depicted uh, but it was a financial flop if you have never seen reds i really commend it to you Uh, it's not that easy to get these days but you can get it and if you haven't read 10 days that shook the world you really should john Reed was a real superstar. He was the Warren Beatty of his era. And uh, his life and tragic death, he was uh, coming back from the, um, from the Congress of the Peoples in Baku in what is now Azerbaijan, the Republic of Azerbaijan, the capital of, uh, and this extraordinary event, the Congress of the Peoples in 1920 in Baku is another of the most significant political events uh, that have made me uh, what I am. I'm an expert on the Congress of the peoples, uh, on uh, Zinoviev who chaired it, uh, on the crowds who arrived from all corners of the earth to Baku uh, to uh, discuss the way forward for the poor, for the colonies, for the downtrodden all over the world. So John Reed went to uh, report on that, and he caught typhus there in Baku. And at the age of 32, he died 100 years ago this week. On this day in 1963, Sir Alec Douglas Hume was elected as the leader of the Conservative Party in the UK. And in one of those democratic moves, which Britain is famous for, he became the new and unelected prime minister on the same day. He was famous for working out, or not, economic problems with matches. He was also one of the appeasers at uh, Munich. He was at the side of Chamberlain when they betrayed uh, the peoples of Europe and betrayed the people of Britain uh, by striking a sordid deal, a pact, you might say, Uh, an Anglo-French Nazi pact. at the Munich uh, capitulation. And Alec Douglas Hume was there as a young man. And I later confronted Alec Douglas Hume in the Queen's Hotel in Dundee, uh, I think during the 1975 referendum, if I'm not wrong, uh, on the European Union. I confronted him on his role as an appeaser at Munich. So that's how old I am. I confronted Alec Douglas Hume, who this week in 1963 became Prime Minister. Uh, In 1989, East Germany's Erich Honecker was forced to step down as leader of the country after a series of health problems. I reckon it was that famous kiss with Brezhnev, uh, which was an extraordinarily passionate embrace that done for Honecker. A day later in 1989, the so-called Guildford Four, who'd been in jail for 15 years for IRA bombings which they did not commit, were all freed by the Appeal Court. And on October 20, in 1983, I remember it well, Grenada's Prime Minister, Maurice Bishop, was assassinated, again at the hands of his comrades. US President Ronald Reagan then sent in 6,000 Marines in a much-criticised invasion, criticised even by the aforementioned Margaret Thatcher. In this week in 1966, tragedy engulfed the Welsh village of Aberfan as a coal slag tip buried a school and killed 144 people, 116 of them children. Prolonged rain caused it, but both the government and the National Coal Board refused to accept financial responsibility. (laughs) Some things never change, so a disaster fund had to pay for removing the remains of the tip overlooking the village. It's rather well handled in the Netflix series The Crown, actually. And uh, this week was also the week when, in 1966, double agent George Blake, who's still alive in Moscow, who had been spying for the Soviet Union, escaped from Wormwood Scrubs Prison in London after a daring breakout organised by two members of the Campaign for Nuclear Disarmament. He is still alive in Moscow because I've tried to meet him without success. He's 98 years old. This was the week in 1956 when the ill-fated Hungarian uprising took place with tens of thousands taking to the streets to demand an end to Soviet rule. Less than a month later, uh, the Russian Premier Nikita Khrushchev sent in the tanks and the revolt was over as was Khrushchev, uh, actually, uh, rather abruptly, just a few years later. In 1983, truck bombs struck U.S. and French bases in Lebanon, killing 241 U.S. Marines and 58 French military personnel. A then-virtually-unknown group called Islamic Jihad claimed responsibility for the attack. Some analysts suspected that it was an Iranian operation and out of it the group we now know as Hezbollah emerged, allegedly. In 2001, the Northern Ireland peace process reached an historic breakthrough as the IRA announced they were decommissioning their weapons. It was on the 24th of October in 1945 that the United Nations was born. The jury is still out on whether that one worked. I'd vote no myself. On the same day, but in 1983, the British serial killer, well, he was a Scotsman, I must confess, Dennis Nielsen went on trial accused of six murders and two attempted murders. He was convicted on all counts, but he later claimed to have murdered 15 or 16 people. He was arrested after a workman found human remains in a block drain at his London home. His method was to drug victims strangle them, finish them off in the bath, but then keep the bodies around talking for several weeks until he dismembered them. Nielsen had been in the Army Catering Corps, which is where no doubt he learned his butchery skills. After the Army he became a mild-mannered UK civil servant. The Scottish actor David Tennant splayed Nielsen, I think that means played, Uh, in a recent and remarkable three-part drama about the killer. Check it out if you can, and your stomach can stand it. I actually uh, don't want to watch it. Uh, It is uh, a story about a sordid low-life mass murderer, and I don't really want to watch any more of those. Uh, On that rather gruesome note, that concludes The Seven Days This Week in History. Annie is in Paris on the terrorist attack there. Annie, welcome to the show.
10: Hello, George. Um, it goes without saying that the killing of that teacher was absolutely appalling. Yep. Um, first of all, though, I'd like to point out that the teacher was 47 years old mm-hmm. and that the children in the class were only 13 years old. hmm and personally, I think that if he truly wanted to speak about freedom of expression, the example he chose was highly inappropriate for kids of that age, whether they were Muslim or non-Muslim.
1: Well, he sent the Muslim children out.
10: He said, he, uh, he said that if, any, if the Muslim children wished to leave, they could. Mm. He didn't send them out. Um,
1: That's not the story uh, I've heard. But anyway, go on, Annie, go on.
10: Yeah. Well, as you know, I mean, those cartoons are highly... Controversial. And I feel he could have spoken about them if he so wished. But there was no need whatsoever to actually show the kids the vulgar drawings of a naked prophet.
1: Well, as I said at the beginning, uh, I, uh, I wish these cartoons had never been drawn. I wish they had never been published. Uh, they are not worth the river of blood that they have produced. Uh, but we can't be. Uh, we can't be equivocal in any way about this, Annie. Uh, it is, in the end, uh, the right uh, of uh, Charlie Hebdo to publish cartoons. If you don't like that, you shouldn't live in France. Uh, if you live in France, you have to accept uh, that French law allows French publications to draw and publish naked uh, pictures of Jesus, of Muhammad. Uh, of uh, Moses, uh, and uh, even uh, even attribute obscene acts to them. Uh, I find it myself repugnant as a religious person, uh, but we cannot equivocate on this. If you don't want to live in that country, you should go back to Chechnya, or you should go back to somewhere else where they don't allow these kind of things. What say you, Annie?
10: Um, <clears throat> well, I have never bought Charlie Hebdo. I mean, it's a it's a, a vile rag, as far as I'm concerned. Mm. But I'm sorry to say that all the declarations in France about it being an attack on freedom of speech are somewhat hypocritical, because there are certain topics here that are totally taboo, and bringing them up publicly can even land you in jail. Like what? I prefer not to say.
1: Okay. So, uh, what's your, uh, what's your analysis of what's going to happen next? Uh, Will this lead to uh, strengthening of the Le Pen uh, outfit? Will it help uh, the current president, Macron, or will it weaken him? What's the political dynamic, do you think, that will now arise out of these events?
10: I don't don't think it's going to be of any great benefit to the uh, the Rassemblement National or whatever it's called now, because um, I think the whole political class are up in arms about this attack. So it's been certainly not left up to Marine Le Pen to condemn it.
1: No, uh, but she's the only one saying we don't want these Muslims in France.
10: Uh, maybe, but there are, <laughs> but there are no, re- I, you know, free speech all very well, but there are no restrictions when it comes to Muslim bashing for anybody.
1: No, that's true. So, uh, but, I mean, hers is an organized uh, political challenge to uh, multiculturalism, multi-race France. Uh, it is, uh, it says, her, her challenge says that uh, Muslims who are in France uh, have to live uh, the French way and if they cannot accept the French way, they need they need to go. Mm. It seems to me well, likely well, that her political line will be strengthened by these events.
10: Well, unfortunately, there's widespread hostility here towards Muslims in general. Mm. And I think, you know, the situation in Britain is unquestionably better. It's a multicultural society that is
1: very harmonious compared to France. I agree. I always say so. Uh, if, you, if you think Britain's racist, you've never lived in France. Uh, but <laughs> uh, but uh, there are something like 8 million uh, Muslims in France. That's four times as many as uh, in Britain. And the reason for that, of course, is that the French Empire uh, colonised and brutalised a very large number of Muslim countries, not just uh, along the Maghreb, uh, the coast of North Africa, but uh, even uh, deeper into the continent of Africa, uh-huh. and therefore, quite a lot of Muslims from the former empire, not so former, actually, if the French government could pull it off, uh, uh, they, they've ended up living in France, and they've had children who've had children, who've had children. Uh-huh. But there's, yeah. there's something of a, a renaissance of religious feeling, if you'll forgive that mixed metaphor, uh, amongst young Muslims in France. They are more militantly Islamic than their parents and grandparents.
13: Mm-hmm. That's true.
1: So how is Macron handling it? Is he rising to the occasion?
10: Uh, well, he did the other night, he's going to make an announcement, uh, make a speech about it next week, I believe. Mm.
1: But um, Well, we look forward to what he's got to say, maybe we'll talk again, Annie, when he's uh, delivered that speech. Thanks uh, very much for the call. Sam is in Denver. Let's hear from him.
2: Sam. Yes, hello, George. Yes, hi. hi. Hello hi. from uh, Smoky Denver.
1: Well, things to do in Denver before you're dead. Uh, I love Denver. <laughs> I've spoken there a couple of times. I like it. It's a wonderful place.
2: Go ahead. Yeah, it's a great, great place to live. Hey, appreciate yeah. it. Um, so the uh, the situation uh, with Turkey, um, you know, we we just keep hearing about new developments with Erdogan uh, getting involved uh, with, um, you know, in, in Libya and uh, now exploring in the Mediterranean, Black Sea. Just tested his S-400. It seems that he's goaded the Izir Iger- the Israeli people into. Um, you know, con- the conflict with the Armenians and really seems that he's he's taken the reins as a uh, like an Islamic strong, strong man. And he's got all of this uh, migrant uh, uh, human resources being pumped into him. Uh, how big a threat uh, is Turkey becoming to the um, the the, gr- the greater uh, uh, stability um, in, in Europe and beyond?
1: Good question. Uh, Look, uh, there's an Arabic uh, um, saying, it's also, I think, uh, applicable in English. Uh, In the land of the blind, the one-eyed man is king. And Erdogan has one eye, uh, while all the other Muslim rulers are blind. And therefore, uh, Erdogan stands out, even though much of what he stands out for is entirely hypocritical. Uh, For example, he uh, condemned uh, in the most uh, condign terms um, the agreement between the UAE and Bahrain uh, with Israel. Whilst Erdogan's Turkey has had uh, full relations with Israel for many decades and uh, even conducts military exercises with them uh, and sells them oil which is stolen from Iraq and from Syria. So how's that for hypocrisy? But uh, Erdogan stands out as uh, a strong and uh, sometimes clear, certainly loud uh, proselytizer for what you could describe as a part of the Muslim cause. He is the leader of the Muslim Brotherhood in the world the Ekwan Muslimin, uh, exists everywhere in the world, including here in Britain, including uh, in the United States. It's everywhere in the world. And Erdogan is its leader. And Mm -hmm. he is, as you say, increasingly pushing the envelope, sending uh, troops and mercenaries, usually Syrian jihadists, not just to Libya, but also now to the Azeri-Armenian conflict in Nagorno-Karabakh. So uh, he is very much flexing his muscles. He plays uh, to both audiences. Uh, he is a putative member of the European Union. He is a full member of NATO, uh, but at the same time, he poses as a, as a caliph, uh, as the new Ottoman emperor. And these are contradictory uh, positions, and eventually, I think he will have to get off one of them uh, if he's not pushed off both. Sam, last word to you.
2: Well, I uh, I, I I hope that you're right. I remember an old uh, story of of uh, Turks in uh, protectorate positions who all, in one moment, turned on their uh, authority, and uh, and when I see the diaspora of Uh, Muslims throughout Europe and beyond. I wonder how their allegiance uh, could possibly turn.
1: (laughs) Well, uh, you see, a lot of that diaspora uh, respects Erdogan, uh, as I say, because he's got one eye, because uh, sometimes he says the right thing. Uh, Sometimes he does the right thing. And when he does, it contrasts so sharply with the moral dwarfs uh, that rule the rest of the Muslim world, Sam. Yes,
2: yeah, that's, I can uh, see
1: that. That's, uh, that's the problem with Erdogan. Sam, thanks for that call. Terrific uh, to hear from you. Let me take a 60-second break. In
3: 2019, Was freed from the shackles of oppression and was unleashed on the airwaves on Sunday nights. Hard hitting, head cracking, record breaking. The mother of all talk shows. A behemoth of broadcasting. A show so popular. We can no longer contain it. It needed one more night. You asked for it, and now you're gonna get it. Wednesday nights. Come and have a go if you think you're hard enough against the reigning defeat. Defending undisputed heavyweight champion on the airwaves, W.G.G. himself, moats extra, George Galloway. bare knuckle, Wednesday nights, just got a whole lot wilder. George Galloway.
0: And the mother of all talk shows. Join us at the College of Knowledge, where there are no tuition fees.
1: Now, uh, in response to our poll, Mary says, Britain has attacked or invaded over 90% of the countries that do exist. That's psychopathy on a global scale. It's also, again, arithmetically wrong. Uh, US and Trump says, Basil, I don't vote. There are no decent candidates. Terry says, Sanders should be the president, but honest people don't win. And Jenny says, only certain people win in these fake rigged selections, and it's never us. And Rachel says, Biden is no better than Trump, just a different clown uniform. And on COVID-19, Ian says, I'm a Rutherglen constituent, that's in Scotland, and so far no reported sightings of the COVID SNP super-spreader, Ferrier. She claims to still have a lot of support locally. She must have finally stuck to the self-isolation rules as she clearly hasn't been out canvassing opinion on the Main Street, utterly brazen from her. Roll on the recall petition. The 8,100 signatures needed will be gathered in record time. I agree with that. I could collect 8,100 signatures to recall Margaret Ferrier in a weekend on my own, easily. Uh, maybe I will. Uh, Jerry says the vaccine is going to be sold by GSK at around £477 per injection. So they will charge the NHS, the government, £477 per injection. Again, I doubt that, Jerry. I need evidence uh, for that. France attack. Charles says absolutely right on the murder in France. If you don't like secularism, do not pick there for shelter and succor. And David says, uh, George, congratulations to your tremendous increase in Moat's viewers and listeners, a great alternative view of politics to the narrative pursued by the Western press, who are acting like a bunch of Stepford wives to their corporate and political masters. Brilliant. Let's hear from Luis in Plymouth about the French attack. Go ahead, Louis. Luis.
14: Hello, thanks for having me for my call on, on the show, George. Welcome, brother. I, um, I want to take this opportunity um, relating to France attacks to bring on the table the treatment that the media uh, has given to China for his their treatment um, about Muslim radicalization and the integration into society and, and the economy. And if France... Uh, could learn from from China's handling of radical Muslims, and also if we can reflect on the double standards of the media. Uh, when we're I've lost so The audience
1: got can... them. Yeah, go ahead, Louis Sorry. Yeah, go ahead. If yeah. like, if if France Sorry. could learn from China, is your message? Sorry. Is yeah. your is your message and that France needs to learn from China?
14: Yeah, on the way to uh, include the Muslim
1: population into the economy and to secularism. Well, look, the the Muslims are entitled to uh, live a religious life, uh, to uh, personally reject uh, secularism. Uh, They are entitled to um, bring up their children in the faith, uh, but they are not entitled to murder other people who don't agree. Uh, they are not entitled to insist on things uh, that don't exist in France like the protection of profits uh, from satire, however ugly, however vile, uh, because that's part of the French uh, way of life that's in their constitution, it's in their culture and if you don't like that why would you uh, choose France uh, to be your, uh, your asylum? That doesn't make any sense, Luis.
14: Absolutely, absolutely. I, I agree with you on that. Uh, I was uh, just pointing out if France can coming, instead of the way, uh, not, not necessarily secularize the population, because what China is doing is taking Muslims that believe in fighting and radical, fighting to Muslims that practice their religion, not necessarily yeah. uh, make them... No, uh, you're
1: you're absolutely correct. Not only does China not uh, suppress uh, Islam and Muslims, there are more mosques in the uh, Xinjiang province uh, where the Uyghur Muslims live. There are more mosques in that province than there there are in any other Muslim country in the whole world per head of population uh, except Saudi Arabia. Uh, There are five times as many mosques in one province in China uh, than there are in the entire uh, United States of America. Uh, The uh, number of Muslims in China is growing, not uh, shrinking. Uh, They are are, uh, allowed by the law to have more children, one third more children than non-Muslims. So far from uh, suppressing Muslims, uh, China is doing the opposite. It is economically developing uh, the, not just the Muslim areas, but the areas of all the ethnic minorities uh, within China, as well as the population of China as a whole. China is cracking down on the kind of people uh, that cut the head off that teacher in France this week. I think they're right to do so. Don't you,
14: Luis? I totally agree. I think you pointed out very interesting facts. Um, th- those are facts that we should know uh, when yeah. we're talking about these issues. And just briefly, I want to make a last comment on, on the issue relating it to the UK's um, scenario.
15: Mm. Um,
14: what, I, what I want to, to point out is that the same uh, material conditions that create the situation where Islam can infiltrate into into a kid, 13 years old kid, mind for God's sake, to kill um, a teacher. I think the same thing, the same mechanism happens in the UK, where the youth, um, where, where the youth is in a condition where they take, for example, knives and and gang fighting, just as a way um, of of escaping the chaos of of the society. Okay, Luis, thanks for the call. I've got to go to Paris and talk to
1: Stephanie on the same subject. Stephanie, welcome.
16: Hi, George. Hi. Hello. Um, I just want to jump on the uh, phone call you had with Annie recently. Yeah. She called from France yeah. also. And uh, she was telling you that... Um, there are some taboos here. And you asked her what was those taboos, and she didn't want to say. And I understand her, because she's right. There are taboos in France, and freedom of of expression isn't for everyone. And um, every society has its taboos. But like, for example, here in France, you cannot criticize Israel. You cannot support publicly Palestine. So these are one of these taboos, for example. Um, It goes without saying that this crime, this murder that happened recently, is horrible. No one should live or go through this, no one at all, no matter what he did. But I just want to ask, why is this Islamophobia growing in France? Why? What is leading this society to reject Islam? Well, maybe, 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 I...
1: uh, maybe Chechen's cutting teachers' heads off in broad daylight. Of... That just has a guess. That might be a boost to Islamophobia. Sorry? That might boost Islamophobia in France. Yes
16: yes of course i'm i'm not i'm not defending him what he did was 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 horrible i understand this but what i want to say is that muslim uh, by the way i'm not a muslim i'm an atheist i just want to say that every religion person in france feels targeted especially muslims you cannot nowadays say with with without pride that you are a muslim or a christian more a, a muslim today if you are a jew they will just look at you like a Jew, even if it's a secular uh, country, even if you have the right to practice your religion. In the mind of people, religion is still a taboo, especially the Islam.
1: Well, this is I don't look, know France, if uh, no, but France is a country that, or the Republic is a, a state uh, form which emerged from the French Revolution and the, yeah. the association of the church with the aristocracy that was overthrown and indeed beheaded. Uh, the, uh, the French revolutionary tradition almost deified secularism, almost yeah. uh, made a religion of secularism. And mm-hmm. if you don't like that, uh, why would you go and live in France? This is my point. What if I'm a French? What if no, I'm a French, born he, and raised here? You yes. are. You I'm not are. talking I'm about I'm talking him. about you. I'm talking about the Chechen that cut the man's yes. head off.
16: Of course. He would go live in Chechenia. I'm not talking about him. Yeah. I'm, I'm talking about live anywhere the idea. Else, but why live in France? Exactly. Exactly. Why live in France? But this is not the question. The question is, what if you are a French? lived, raised, born, lived, raised in France, mm. and you are a Muslim. Mm. How would you feel in this country? Well,
1: uh, I would uh, seek to make alliances uh, with, uh, with non-Muslims and try and change the prevailing political atmosphere in the country. And, well, uh, you know we, how this, this well, goes. I mean, you well, we, no, um, understand no, how. No, I don't. If 3% more people had voted for Monsieur Mélenchon uh, in the first round of the last presidential election, he would be the president now, and we wouldn't be having exactly. this conversation. So uh, oh, just I would 3%, have been, that's all.
16: I would have been glad if Melanchoe was president. I would have been very glad. Unfortunately, we live now with Macron.
1: Yeah, we, we do, but that's and our fault. Why, why didn't we get that extra 3% for Melanchoe? Yes.
16: Our fault. It's our fault. We should have voted. We should have been tougher on our choices. I understand, but those people who didn't vote, or those people who voted, so now they are just living with their mistake. This is what
1: what you're. You know, we're, we're all living with our mistake in that regard. Stephanie, that was a great call. Don't be a stranger. Make it regularly, please. Stephanie in Paris on the French attack. Where do you stand? Uh, on it. Let me give you the number again. 02077 982 or in the U.S. 001 757 4480 or tweet us at George Galloway at RTUK News. Speaking of news, here's Jamie Lowe with our news.
0: The mother of all talk shows, the only education you can get for free. Radio Sputnik, we speak your language. Find
10: us at SputnikNews.com.
11: Sputnik News. Armenia and Azerbaijan have accused each other of violating a humanitarian ceasefire in the disputed region of nagorno karabakh Both sides had agreed a truce at the start of midnight local time last night, but an Armenian Defence Ministry spokeswoman said Azerbaijan broke the ceasefire after just four minutes by firing artillery shells and rockets. Azerbaijan later said Armenia had broken the truce after two minutes. Both countries signed a Russian-brokered ceasefire last Saturday. However, clashes have continued despite that accord. A senior British scientific adviser has claimed that more than one coronavirus vaccine will be available in the first quarter of 2021. Sir Jeremy Farrar, who sits on the government's SAGE Advisory Committee, said, quote, I think in the first quarter of next year we will have vaccines. We'll have more than one vaccine. It's unlikely the jabs will be administered before Christmas, which for our thinks will be a tough one this year and not like a normal Christmas for almost everybody. But he is expecting data on vaccines in November and December, pointing out that the UK has a portfolio of potential options. Thousands of NHS staff will be trained to administer a vaccine, with inoculations potentially beginning soon after Christmas. In a briefing to MPs on Monday afternoon, England's Deputy Chief Medical Officer Professor Jonathan Van Tam said, it isn't a totally unrealistic suggestion that we could deploy a vaccine soon after Christmas, adding that such a development would have a significant impact on hospital admissions and deaths. Van Tam is said to be expecting third stage results from the Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine by the end of November. Another multinational drug company, Pfizer, has apparently already manufactured several hundred thousand doses of a jab at a plant in Belgium. Greater Manchester's Labour Mayor Andy Burnham has called for wider support over the region's stance against stricter COVID-19 curbs, saying, quote, This is not just a Greater Manchester fight. Burnham said, it was everyone's concern because everywhere could end up in tier three over winter. Leaders in the region have rejected a move to the highest alert level without more generous financial support. Government minister Michael Gove responded, we hope to agree a new approach, but he accused Burnham of posturing and criticised what he described as the incoherence of politicians there and warned that if an agreement could not be reached, the government would look at having to impose restrictions. Michael Gove has also said that the door is still ajar for talks with the European Union over a post-Brexit trade deal, but only if it moves ground on key areas. Negotiations between the UK and the EU have stalled amid disagreements over fishing access and competition issues. The cabinet minister said the EU must speed up the negotiation process and offer the UK better terms. The EU has said it's prepared to intensify talks but would not agree a deal at any price. Gove has also been accused of being in cloud cuckoo land by Labour after he defended spending £7,000 a day on consultants brought in to work on the government's test and trace system. Asked if the fees were a good use of public money, Gove replied yes. Bolston Consulting Group were paid about £10 million for a team of around 40 consultants to do four months' work between the end of April and late August. A convicted murderer who helped thwart an attack on London Bridge will be considered for parole ten months early. Stephen Gallant, 42, was jailed for 17 years in 2005 for the murder of ex-firefighter Barry Jackson in Hull. He was on day release attending a prisoner rehabilitation event when he confronted Usman Khan with a narwhal tusk after the 28-year-old began stabbing people in November 2019. Gallant's parole board will decide whether he can be released early. A Minister of Justice spokesperson said the Lord Chancellor has granted Stephen Gallant a royal prerogative of mercy, reducing his minimum tariff by ten months in recognition of his exceptionally brave actions at Fishmongers Hall, which helped save people's lives despite the tremendous risk to his own. Khan, who killed Saskia Jones and Jack Merritt, was later shot dead by police. An 11th person has been arrested in France as authorities investigate the murder of French teacher Samuel Paty. The 47-year-old was beheaded on Friday near the school where he taught northwest of central Paris. Police have named the suspect who was shot dead as Abdullah A, an 18-year-old man born in Moscow of Chechen origin. As police approached him, he fired at them with an air gun. Officers returned fire, hitting him nine times. A 30-centimetre-long blade was found close by. No details have been given about the latest person detained by French authorities. Four close relatives of the suspect were arrested shortly after the killing. Six more were detained on Saturday including the father of a pupil at the school and a preacher described by French media as a radical Islamist. President Emmanuel Macron said the attack bore all the hallmarks of an Islamist terror attack and the teacher had been murdered because he taught freedom of expression. Torrential rain has caused a landslide in Vietnam that's killed at least 22 people days after another one killed 13. In the latest incident, rocks and earth slid down a mountain onto an army base after a week of continuous rain in Quang Tri province state-run Vietnam news agency said eight people were able to get away, but the others were thought to be trapped underneath mud. On Thursday, another landslide near to the Quang Tri region killed 13, 11 of whom were army officers. And finally, a key ally of Brazil's president has been arrested after anti-corruption officers discovered a wad of banknotes in the underpants that he was wearing. Police initially found 10,000 reels, which is around £1,380, inside a safe in Senator Chico Rodriguez's house during a search on Wednesday. He then asked if he could go to the bathroom and according to the police report, an officer noticed a large rectangular bulge under the senator's shorts as he walked off. Found inside his underwear near his buttocks were stacks of money that totaled 15,000 reals, the report stated. When asked a further three times whether he had any additional cash stowed in his underpants, the senator angrily shoved his hand into his underwear to retrieve more stacks of bills, totaling £2,500. Rodriguez, who is President Bolsonaro's deputy leader in the Senate, has now been suspended. And that's the latest here on Sputnik News. I'm Jamie Lowe.
0: You're listening to Radio Sputnik Sputnik. Telling the Untold Welcome to the Open University of the Airwaves With George Galloway Only on Sputnik Radio
1: Now, speaking of dad dancing, here's the second poll. What's the ultimate dad dance song? A, come on Eileen. B, living on a prayer. What's living on, who did living on a prayer? John Bon Jovi, whoever he is. And C, Mustang Sally. That's not a dad dance song, that's a great, great song. Uh, Anybody see The Commitments? The guy in The Commitments sung it better even than the original. Uh, Okay, what's the ultimate dad dance song? A, come on, Arlene. B, living on a prayer. C, Mustang Sally. You can vote on my uh, Twitter feed. Now, of course, uh, half of Britain is currently on lockdown. There is no proper financial support for the workers, for the businesses that employ them, for the local authorities that must cope with the backwash, for the National Health Service, uh, which is the front line. Uh, But they're on lockdown anyway. The lockdown rules are, in some cases, absolutely contradictory. Uh, For example, your girlfriend can't come over to your house and have sex with you, but you can have sex outdoors. Uh, It's a dogger's charter, uh, in fact. Uh, the, uh, The contradictions of not being able to have your uh, friends round uh, to your house, your relatives even uh, round to your house, uh, but you can sit in the park with them. You can't even sit in a pub with them, but you can only drink soft drinks, unless you're in the beer garden, in which case you can consume alcohol. I could go on. Uh, there's a list as long as your arm. armed of the contradictions. But the most important one is that the British economy is being broken, the working class put through the ringer, uh, with no discernible positive result. Uh, As I said last week, if these lockdowns and, and other measures were working, everyone would be behind them. Uh, but there's no sign that they are working and that it is too late now uh, for them to work. Let me put my cards on the table. If I had been in charge of this country, we would have approached this issue and with the benefit of China's experience in the most draconian, the most authoritarian way if I had been in charge, we would have closed Britain completely. There would have been no flights in, never mind hundreds of flights a day from the worst affected places in the world. Northern Italy, New York City, even Wuhan in China. There would have been nobody flying in here and nobody flying out. And if they did, they would have to quarantine separately from their families, and separately from society, in hotels, and looked after by not CERCO or the uh, sundry fraudsters that have been given billions of pounds of British taxpayers' money to not track and trace people, Uh, there would have been trucks out on the street spraying it. So I'm not a libertarian. I'm certainly not a liberal. We should have met and we had a chance to meet because we had many weeks notice that this was coming our way. We are an island, hallelujah. It's always served us in good stead actually. We could have made this island an impregnable fortress against the coronavirus. In the way that South Korea, Vietnam, China, New Zealand, and other places have made themselves fortresses. In all those places I've just mentioned, the life of the people is now entirely back to normal. In fact, the Chinese economy is again booming. China is going to be the only country in the whole world whose economy will grow this year while ours is crashing and burning. So what we did, we did too late, we did too badly, we stopped doing too early, and I'm not up for another round. I'm not up for another round of lockdowns. I fear that we are now going to have to face this in the way that our people had to face the Blitz in 1940 and 41 and 42 in East London, in Coventry, in Merseyside, on Clydeside, Birmingham, and all the places that were remorselessly bombed. We're going to have to face this challenge in the way that we face that, which is this. We're going to have to take all necessary precautions, and we are going to have to take them. We're going to have to keep our distance from people. We're going to have to uh, continually uh, take precautionary measures, washing our hands, hand gel, masks. We're going to have to do all that. There's no way out of that or you'll get it. Sure as eggs and eggs. We're going to have to do all that we can commensurate with continuing our lives, continuing our economy, uh, continuing our life as far as it is possible when faced with a serious threat, like the bombing of the Blitz, like the advance of the coronavirus. That's my policy. It's one I share with my comrades in the Workers' Party of Britain because our purpose is only one. We have only one purpose, and that is to defend the working people of this country who have been poorly served, by a shambolic, incompetent, and corrupt government and civil service during this crisis. But the most medic, Dr. Ranjit Bra, is free to agree or disagree with anything that I have just said, and I'm glad to say he joins us now. Dr. Ranjit, uh, in situ, uh, in, uh, in surgery, in the hospital. Um, what's your take on where we stand now on the coronavirus?
17: Thanks, George. Good to be with you. Uh, happily, it's fallen in a, in a natural break in my on-call shift, so I'm, I'm glad to be with you. Um, but I listened with interest to your uh, opening statement. George is quite comprehensive. I think it's a good summary um, or, and recap of so many things that we've discussed over the last seven to 10 months. And let's not forget our government has had 10 months to deal with the coronavirus pandemic. It's 10 months in which We saw initial inactivity characterised simply by propaganda point scoring and almost gloating at the problems China was going through. We called China draconian for dealing appropriately and um, specifically targeting the coronavirus where it saw it uh, and creating the necessary public health measures to isolate it, overcome it and eradicate it from their population when still less than one-half of one-hundredth of one percent of the Chinese population have suffered coronavirus and therefore they've still had less than 90,000 cases and only less than 10,000 deaths we in Britain you know, should hang our heads in shame, but it's not been the general population uh, that's been at fault. It's been our government. We saw initially a frank admission that it was herd immunity that was going to be the policy of our government. Uh, Dominic Cummings, Boris Cummings, still most trusted advisor despite all his transgressions, made that abundantly clear. And As it ran rampant through the population, it was only when uh, a huge peak in excess mortality, probably 80,000 people who wouldn't otherwise have died, have died. because of their uh, faulty handling and they were forced into lockdown in the first place. The population collaborated, the population went along with it, the population was keen to do whatever they could at that point to try and regain control and took sacrifices. We saw that a huge amount of largesse was distributed, but it was largesse, it was a huge amount of 350 billion, it was really not so much targeted as the working population most in need as business. Uh, and in particular very big businesses who had suffered suffered a massive crash black friday black thursday on the stock exchange and a world crisis it wasn't targeted at the working people who needed it most and the working people who needed it most suffered the most and we know currently five million people in our country are looking at destitution a third of our children at school are still hungry it's left to people like Mar- marcus rashford tagged mm-hmm. as the conscience of the nation because our government and the opposition refused to do so. And We've been introduced, as you say, a series of measures, this so-called three-tier lockdown system, which is neither equitable uh, nor is it effective. In fact, the very scientific offices that the government purports to follow, they've always had this mantra, follow the science and you know, support the NHS, stop it from being overwhelmed. Far from doing that, um, they're not following the science. The scientists themselves are saying these measures won't be effective and yet they're asking us to observe them with an increasingly punitive approach, large fines, 4,000 pound fines to people who are found to be breaching lockdown and this week we heard that the data from the test and track app would be handed to the Metropolitan Police and other police forces up and down the country to enforce, so an increasingly punitive uh, stance being taken by a government who themselves have failed and left us exposed. So. You know, I think your your stance is right, George. I don't think that we've changed anything we've said about the nature of the virus, about the nature of the way we should be protecting ourselves, about the nature of the way our government could have reacted to really protect the community. But as you say, they've left us in a situation where it's every man for themselves and and every woman for themselves, every child for themselves, and as we've seen the numbers increase through the young population, inevitably it's starting to spread to the elderly. and. You know, once again, in the hospital where I'm working, I'm seeing patients admitted to the intensive care unit for mechanical ventilation. I'm seeing increasing numbers of people who do have the virus admitted to hospital. We know there are probably 5,000 patients in hospital throughout the country. We know there are probably six or 700 on mechanical ventilator beds, and and, and a a majority of them may be in the Northwest, but they're spread actually throughout the country. And we're looking at a situation that will get out of control. Our government have acknowledged it. They're afraid to put in, in place measures that would adequately cope with it, because those measures would be looking after the NHS, really directing funding through the NHS, rather than around it, through their cronies in business. Because actually, under the mantra of protecting the NHS, they're putting final nails in the NHS, and it's for those precise ideological political reasons and the approach that they've taken that we're facing this problem, and increasing numbers of the British working population are quite clearly fed up to the back teeth of it, George.
1: I was in the station yesterday, uh, and, There were notices up uh, that you will be fined thousands. Uh, You say four. My recollection it was even more than 4,000 was the potential fine uh, for not cooperating. And this punitive approach that is being taken is being, uh, has become more than an irritant to a very substantial uh, proportion of the uh, British population. partly for ideological reasons, in some cases, uh, libertarians who uh, won't accept that, I uh, suppose there were some in 1941 uh, that uh, didn't like being told to pull their blinds down. Uh, but they have to pull their blinds down unless they want uh, the, uh, the city to be bombed. We still have to observe uh, obvious and commonsensical precautions. I wear a mask when I'm in a station. Not because I'll be fined if I don't, uh, but because I don't want to give anyone the virus and I'm hoping they don't give it to me. Um, I am in the process of moving, as you know, uh, to uh, a rural part of Scotland where I'm hoping it will not be as prevalent because the borough that I live in in London is now the worst in London. And where I had to go today uh, with my boy to the football, is the second worst area in London. Uh, it's a story of total cataclysmic and corrupt failure, isn't it?
17: It is indeed. It's, it's uh, an, an indication of our system, which is itself anarchistic, which uh, reflects the economic stance of our government, that it doesn't really care for the poorest and most vulnerable in our society. I think you're right. I mean, my, my, my father now is over 80 years old. Uh, I'm much more concerned for him than I am for myself um, and my immediate family and my children who are young and I'm sure will be among the fortunate who even if they are affected, uh, infected by the virus will come through it okay. But I do worry for the more vulnerable. I know that the more vulnerable in our society are themselves precisely taking your advice, George. They are being very strict with themselves and it takes a heavy toll on them. But of course the fact that our NHS in many parts of the country again will have to devote itself entirely to looking after patients with the coronavirus again will take a toll on that portion of the population who are vulnerable, who are trying to avoid attending hospital and it will worsen their health outcomes for a range of diseases, a range of acute and chronic medical conditions for which normally they should be able to be in good contact with the NHS Uh, and the extra funding which is going to the NHS isn't increasing the NHS's capacity It is going to systems of tracking and tracing which have utterly failed, precisely because of their inefficiency, because they're run by private contractors. In some cases, for example, remember PPE was provided by shell companies that have popped up that didn't exist three weeks ago, but were giving contracts worth hundreds of millions of pounds and whose directors just happen to have strong connections with government and Tory party grandees in particular. So this is what we're dealing with, a a government which is intent on looting the state and passing the proceeds to the best off in society, under a mantra of protecting the NHS, precisely as they're strangling it. And our population have had enough, Uh, they've lost confidence, I think, in this government to a large degree, but sadly they've also lost confidence in the uh, democratic system and the opposition, the Labour Party opposition. Who, despite you know, dissonance from certain northern mayors such as Andy Burnham for good reason, you know, and, and those northern mayors are not being threatened with punitive measures. On the on the contrary, they're being offered, you know, a few million here and there to try and uh, as emoluments to try and bring them over. So it shows you the way in which uh, a differential approach of our government, but that for the population at large. You know, we're being isolated, we're being denied our normal social contact and social props, we're being denied our normal access to social care, precisely because our government is actually taking a hammer to the NHS, is intent on privatizing it, and it's actually using the cover of this pandemic uh, to, you know, infringe upon uh, our rights to public services more and more, George.
1: Dr. Ranjit, the only surprise is that people are not even more angry uh, than they are uh, this Uh, fact that you uh, just uh, uh, alluded to Uh, companies that literally did not exist a few weeks ago and who therefore by definition have never operated on these kind of issues before because they didn't exist. They've never bought PPE. They've never tracked and traced are being given millions in some cases hundreds of millions of pounds of public money this this that's what the police should be doing not going through the going house to house looking for uh, people whose girlfriends have come to stay they should be arresting the people involved in giving out these corrupt contracts
17: i think you're absolutely right there is major corruption, and corruption essentially is criminality, but we know that, for example, Serco, uh, which has been involved involved in billions of government contracts, uh, uh, was defrauding the government over various issues relating prisoners, prisoner tagging, uh, and has has faced minimal fines, which are insignificant in, in terms of the amount of billions that they get from the government they will find one million one and a half million for various breaches of their contract including knowing corruption and falsification of figures and again it's likely to be the case that this carries on our government is immune from the very law they purport to uphold and therefore it's no wonder when they turn from you know a persuasion and having our best interests at heart to coercion fining, punitive measures, imprisonment, to enforce a regime of testing and tracing and a lockdown which quite evidently and palpably has failed and led us to this situation. It's no wonder that the population uh, are are losing sympathy. How we hold them to account uh, is for us to see in the future. There's no question in my mind that the British working people need some kind of organization to represent them and actually champion their rights and hold this power to an account because at the moment, they are absolutely unaccountable and running rampant in our country, George.
1: Dr. anjeeb Bra, thanks for joining us. Uh, we're going to have to continue this conversation, I suspect, in, increasingly angrily uh, over the weeks and months to come. Thanks for joining us, uh, as always. Uh, social media comments on Trump. Rachel says, I knew of Trump while working as a construction manager. Every bad thing about his is worse than reported. And Jenny says all the wars have been hyper ramped up since Trump got in. And he's canceled several treaties and provoked war all over the world. Well, that's partly true, Jenny, uh, but actually he hasn't started uh, a new war, which makes him unusual amongst American presidents. Avni says they have removed democratically elected leaders and replaced them with dictators. And Pete says the U.S. is going back to medievalist ways. Those close to the U.S. will get dragged down with them. And Stephanie eh, on the French attack says no religion calls for violence, especially not the one we've seen recently in France. Unfortunately, there are ignorance and propagandists on both sides, people profiting from this crime. David is in Malaysia on COVID. Let's hear from him. David, welcome.
6: Thanks, George. I was on your show about two weeks ago. I was trying to argue um, that the lockdown is the mother of all own goals that humanity has uh, scored on itself. And I was trying to make the point about uh, Sweden pursuing this different approach. And the fact that Sweden's outcomes have been neither significantly better or worse than other nations proves that the lockdown, in fact, makes no difference. And this week, we've just had this a great Barrington declaration from public health experts. It's a petition that's out there, um, which was shadowed by Google and uh, ridiculed by The Guardian uh, as being kind of fake. Um, But essentially, they they have just stated what public health policy is. And and they're saying that lockdowns are never prescribed uh, for pandemics, uh, that public health... um, Policy never considers a single disease in isolation. They stress that the risk of the current virus is a thousand times greater for older people and vulnerable people than it is for young people, who are basically a negligible risk, and that the impact of the current um, measures falls disproportionately, and this, this should be of concern to you, on the working class. It's people working in supermarkets, uh, bus drivers, people who are unable to sit at uh, home baking sourdough bread, who are the ones who are suffering. So their, their policy really is, a, is the public health policy of protect the vulnerable and let everybody else get on with life.
15: Well,
1: that's, uh, that's correct, but uh, you shouldn't, uh, you shouldn't uh, be like-minded about the danger to the vulnerable uh, from the healthy uh, or from the, the less at risk. Uh, because if, uh, if every young person in the country catches this disease, then they are going to pass it on to the vulnerable. Uh,
6: well, it, 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 I, I'm in the vulnerable category, George, mm-hmm. and, I, you know, I think I, I can manage my own life and take, and take my own
1: precautions. Well, that, that's good, um, but not everyone's in that position. A lot of grandmothers live with their families, for example. My point,
6: George, really is that the lockdown, it doesn't make any difference whether you lock down or, or don't lock down.
1: Well, it made the a difference in China. About the same. It made it, a difference in China.
6: It's too late for that now for us, George. Uh, I mean, we've got to get an exit. We, we, we need agree. an exit strategy
3: yeah, now I agree. to get
6: out of this and get back to normal. And um, locking agree. down further and punitive measures are not going to get us there. Well, I, and I this we're idea the, of we're Follow finally, the science. We're finally follow on, the science.
1: David, we're finally on the same page. It's too late for yeah. that. But okay,
6: the idea of follow the science, most ridiculous thing the most ridiculous thing you hear all the time, follow the science, follow the science. I mean, who's science? Ferguson's science with his computer models?
1: As war is too important to be left to generals, uh, a war against uh, an epidemic is too important to be left only to scientists. And especially, as you allude, uh, there are scientists whose track records are not great, and there are many scientists with... wildly divergent and contradictory points of view. It's the job of a political leader to balance uh, all the facts. And when the facts change, so do my opinions, as Groucho Marx put it. I've always been a Groucho Marxist. David, thanks for that call. Let me take a quick break, then it's calls all the way to 10 p.m.
18: look at these reviews an intermedial masterpiece no way out a surprise smash no way out it was shocking courageous inclusive and i loved every minute of it no way out how could this happen The show was lousy and long, and we did everything wrong. Where did we go right? Christmas came early to broadcasting this year, and guess who they stuffed in our stocking? George Galloway! It was so crass and so crude, even Murdoch would have booed. Where did we go wrong? Right? Last year, a radio star was reborn on the airwaves, the mother of all talk shows with George Galloway. A new show, mowed sex to George Galloway, bare knuckle. We predict the new show's name will soon be up in lights. If they can find enough bulbs! <laughs> we search
8: it on and off
18: were a cop, we had callers and reporters by the score. We were so enthusiastic, we built a set made out of plastic. If anyone spoke sense, well, we sent them out the door. They shouted, hooray, that's socialist on display. Where did we go right? When they asked for one more day, we nearly ran away. show so easy to despise. Now it's up for the Pulitzer Prize. Oh where, oh where, tell us where did we go right? The best new program of the decade. George Galloway is a political genius. Now they like him. Oh we knew it wouldn't sell. We broadcast in Israel. It's the end of our career. It'll run for 20 years. Tell us where it did we go right?
0: George Galloway and the mother of all talk shows. Join us at the College of Knowledge, where there are no tuition fees.
1: Bravo, Simon. That was a brilliant piece of work. And uh, if you uh, want to go bare knuckle... Uh, On Wednesday nights, well, it's even more colorful uh, than this show and uh, does deep dives into issues that we don't have time really uh, to deeply dive into here on a Sunday. But the only way you're going to be able to do that after the problems we had with Facebook uh, last Wednesday is to uh, subscribe on Patreon. So go to Patreon. Uh, Maybe we can put that up on the screen uh, if someone can do that. Uh, It's on the screen now, www.patreon.com forward slash George Galloway. It's only a dollar. It's less than the price of a cup of coffee. It is half the price of a lousy newspaper. And you'll get three hours of deep diving and some blood on the canvas. So do that for this Wednesday. I promise you we've got a cracker of a show lined up. What's the ultimate dad dance song? Come on, Eileen. 52%. I'm not surprised at that. Living on a Prayer, 25%. That's more of a karaoke one, that. And Mustang Sally, 23%. You can still vote right up to the end of the show on my uh, Twitter feed. Uh, Sorry, come on, Eileen has just gone up. Living on a Prayer has just gone down. Mustang Sally, Sally has stayed steady. Let's take some calls. Calls right up to 10 now. Rapid fire. Sarkar in Glasgow on Brexit. Go ahead, Sarkar.
13: George, good evening, thanks for once again having me on the show, mate.
1: You're welcome, sir.
13: George, a small question, basically. If you go back 10 months earlier, 11 months earlier, the, oven de- uh, the Brexit deal was oven-ready. Boris Johnson won the mandate, as he calls a stonking majority, on uh-huh. that basis.
11: Uh-huh.
1: It was the actually the withdrawal. Days, just let me stop you there, because I see this all the time. It was the withdrawal agreement that he said was oven-ready, not the uh, deal at the end of this year with the EU. He never said that was oven ready. He said the withdrawal agreement was oven ready, and he did get the withdrawal agreement, and he did get a majority for it. Sorry to interrupt you, go ahead.
13: No, no, I appreciate, Josh, for rectifying, because you know sometimes things go out in Chinese. Yeah, yeah. Thank you so much, Josh. That's yeah. why I always follow your show. Now, basically, him proposing a Canada or an Australia-style no deal uh brexit like some kind of a trade agreement like canada and australia do how will that be working out in the grand scheme of things for the future prospects of uk as a nation encompassing northern ireland scotland wales and england because tom- next year we have the scottish elections how will that be working out uh, not just in the scottish elections but also in the grand scheme of things throughout in the future
1: Well, uh, of course, uh, it's the ultimate question, the hour uh, does not permit me to do it uh, entirely uh, justice, Uh, I believe there will be a deal, Uh, I am uh, completely sanguine if there is not. If there is not a deal, then there is a deal, and that deal is the basis on which most of the world trades with the European Union, the biggest losers uh, will not be us but them if they don't make a deal. And as I predicted all along, German and French capital is beginning to uh, insist on that point with their own governments. Uh, there's considerable uh, dissatisfaction with Michel Barnier and his, uh, uh, his uh, approach to the negotiations. The truth is, Sarkar, uh, I speak as someone who's frequently driven German cars, uh, those German uh, motor uh, companies want to keep selling me cars and they don't want any interruption uh, or, uh, or uh, barrier uh, to be erected to selling their cars to me. Ditto French food manufacturers or, or cars for that matter. Ditto Italian food manufacturers and cars and so on. So I believe there will be a deal. Uh, it will be um, a deal that I probably won't like in that it will probably compromise uh, the fishing interests of the country. Uh, Some people say, Steve Norris said it to me on on the Sputnik yesterday, fishing is uh, an insignificant part of our economy. Uh, First of all, I don't accept that. Secondly, it should be a much more significant part. We're going to have to start growing our own, fishing our own, eating our own uh, uh, food and fish and uh, food that we grow. Uh, But if it's not important, if it's not significant, why are the French and the Dutch uh, threatening to break the uh, whole negotiation process over it? It's obviously significant to them, so why would it be insignificant to us? Uh, But I believe there will be a deal. If there isn't a deal, then the first thing to rejoice about is we will not be paying the European Union 40 billion pounds in a divorce deal that should never have been necessary in the first place. So we'll have not just the money that we don't any longer have to send as a net contributor to the EU, we'll have saved 40 billions too. And I've got lots of ideas about what we could spend that on. Sarka, we'll discuss this nearer uh, to the time uh, in more depth. Thanks very much for the call. I've got to go to Michael because he's all the way in Sydney, Australia, on the Paris attack. Go ahead, Michael.
19: Yeah, hi, George. Um, look, just on the Paris attack, mate, um, I happen to agree with Stephanie and Annie. I think they made very good points. Um, you, know, you know, if these cartoons kind of were about, um, just, just, say, the prophet Moses or Jesus or even the Queen or someone like that, there'd be a totally different outcry in these countries. I've got a few points here to so bear with me. Mm-hmm. Secondly, um, you know, you're talking about soccer and shelter. Well, as far as I know, American forces and their allies are, are bombing Sahel and, and the French-speaking part of Africa. Mm-hmm. And also they're Libya and bombed that, and they actually created the um, refugee crisis because most refugees leave from Libya. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned um, soccer and shelter. Well, maybe they're going to Maybe the English and Americans, Europeans, should have had African Africa to go looking for soccer and shelter and also resources. And... Um, mm-hmm. Secondly, rebuilding churches with state money. As I remember, Notre Dame has large contributions from the state. Um, this is another one. And also, just quickly on Turkey's um, adventurism. In case an American, American American hasn't checked the map, like a typical American, Turkey happens to share a long border with the Mediterranean and Black Sea, as opposed to America.
1: Uh, well, look, Michael. There's too much there to unpack and to uh, deal with uh, with any justice. So. I'll stick to your uh, French point and leave the others for another time, if I may. Uh, I'm not in second place to you in hatred of French colonialism uh, and hatred of colonialism and imperialism in total. I'm really not in second place. And I've spent a long life uh, fighting uh, against these things. Uh, But this teacher that was beheaded uh, did not invade or occupy anybody. He did not invade or occupy North Africa. He didn't invade or occupy other parts of Muslim Africa currently uh, still in a semi-detached relationship with France. He was a civilian. He was an innocent teacher who was barbarically murdered and mutilated in the most horrific death you can imagine uh, in full view of the school community. We have to be unequivocal about that. You can't say look over there to Benin or Mali. You can't say look over there to what the French did in Algeria, uh, uh, barbaric on a giant scale. You can't even say look what France did in Libya and is still doing in Lebanon and in Syria. You can't do that. You have to say I unequivocally and utterly condemn uh, this act of foul murder, full stop. You can do then what I try to do in my monologue and say that France now, not historically, because you can't do anything about your history. You can not rewrite it, relive it, play it again, Sam. You can't, but you can change your present and your future and France and Britain should look at the ever mounting evidence of the sheer folly of the policy of supporting Islamist fanatics in one country or another, whether it is Islamic fanatism in China or in Chechnya or in Libya or in Syria or in Lebanon, You have to stop this, not only because it's wrong, it's always been wrong, but because it is blowing back and causing the shedding of blood on your own streets too. That's my point. Tony is in Liverpool, let's hear from him. Go ahead, Tony.
15: Good evening to you, George, hope you're well.
1: Thanks, good to hear from you.
15: Um, Yeah, it's been a while. Um, I wanted to touch on the um, the surrounding Hunter Biden's computers, George. Um, It's ironic that the FBI have had these computers in their possession and the hard drives, obviously, since December last year.
1: Yeah, and uh, they had no intention of showing us them.
15: Absolutely not. Had it not been for the computer shop owner who had the common sense...
1: To take a copy.
15: ...to back up the hard drives himself, we would never have heard anything about this. And, And suddenly, as soon as this is disseminated into people such as Rudy Giuliani, um, you know, Steve Bannon, you know, people like that. All of a sudden, the FBI know that it's in their possession. Now they're investigating whether there are links to the Russians, which is absolutely ridiculous because they know that these uh, have It was like a like Russian legitimate... computer
1: shop, apparently.
15: Exactly. It, uh, you I know think the drill... its
1: proprietor was V. Putin or something.
15: Yeah, you know the drill, George. So do we. Um, Now, they've only done that because they know that this is obviously going to cause a huge storm, which it will. And, you know, there are allegations, and there are pictures and videos on on the Internet now, which I won't go into because they are allegations that it's not not right for me to do that. Um, They're not verified, but we know they're true. Because if Joe Biden and Hunter Biden knew that they were false, why aren't they suing the New York Post?
1: Yeah, exactly. Uh, They won't sue because the fundamentals of this story are true. And I'll make a prediction to you, Tony. Either either this uh, laptop gate will cause the defeat of Biden, or if he wins, it will cause his resignation and uh, making way for Kamala Harris. Uh, Because uh, I have no doubt that whatever the cognitive decline uh, of uh, Joe Biden, he was smart enough to be a part of the money-making schemes of his son Hunter, and I believe that's provable from the laptop. Last word to you, Don.
15: Absolutely, George. And I think Hunter Biden actually states in the um, in, in some of the emails that his 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 father takes half of the salary, that <coughs> he picks up himself, yeah. which which is absolutely astonishing. And I believe um, Joe Biden, who's basically been a senator most of his life, apart from obviously the VP. Uh, position he held over eight years and um, last year he, he I, th- I believe he earned four million dollars last year him and his wife how, no. how did he earn that kind of money George
1: well some of them earn far more Nancy Pelosi uh, earned uh, many millions more than that uh, so much for the Democrats being the blue-collar party all in it together George aren't they? all in it together all in the trough together Tony, thanks for your call, mate. Lovely uh, to hear from you. Janet says, I'd suggest High Ho Silver Lining. It was a dad song even in the 70s. It really was, actually. I, I play music on a Wednesday because I've got a license to, but I can't play it on a Sunday. Uh, but if I could, I'd play you a blast if you've not heard it. High Ho Silver Lining is a great dad dance song. And as Janet says, it even was back in the 70s. Helen says, Sweet Caroline. Sweet Jesus, save us. Sweet Caroline's another big dad dance song. And Lars says, come on, Eileen, it's a good song. But it does have this specific quality to it. It does, it does. And Attila says the Tories are quite happy to destroy the UK economy to get the Brexit that they want. But not to save people's lives, says everything, really. So let's go to Mississippi, M-I-S-S-I, double S-I, double P-I, and talk to Patrick.
8: Go ahead, Patrick. Hey, Mr. Dalloway. It's good to hear from you again. And you, sir. Um, what, uh, I appreciate it. Thank you so much. I wanted to call in to discuss uh, the uh, third-party candidates who have been greatly, of course, as they always are, overshadowed by uh, MSM yeah. in this presidential election cycle. Yeah. Yeah. I believe I shared a video with you a few days ago about uh, there was actually a third-party presidential debate that was totally overlooked. And I tell you what, Mr. Galloway, all of these guys, every single one of the candidates, you know, they're in the, you know, politically they span from the far left to the far right, they would all be considerably better options than Trump and Biden. You know, everyone from Howie Hawkins of the Green Party, you know, I don't necessarily agree with everything that he espouses, but I listen to what he has to say, how articulate he is, he has a clear and concise and coherent, programmatic, you know, agenda and message, and... I just think if he were permitted to debate both Trump and Biden, someone like him would just totally wipe the floors, wipe the floor with both of them.
1: Well, I don't know. Uh, obviously, I agree with you that the cast of the Disney Channel uh, would be a better president. The cast of the, the Mickey Mouse Clubhouse would be better than Biden or Trump. I agree with that. Um, last time, I proselytized for Dr. Jill Stein, the Green Party candidate. Uh, But I can't do so for the Green Party's current candidate. And as to the others, uh, I'll take your word for it uh, because they haven't impacted uh, on me yet. Patrick, thanks for the call. got to go to South Africa, to Durban, and talk with Idris. Idris in Durban. Go ahead, sir. Hello, George. Welcome, brother. Go ahead. Right.
9: Um... That uh, incident in Paris, right, Mm -hmm. Um, that maniacal, horrid man deserved his fate Mm -hmm. for killing that poor teacher. Mm -hmm. So uh, I have no sympathy for the murderer. Now, uh, I just want to say to you, um, there is a little bit of hypocrisy in the West. Uh, Have you heard of uh, uh, the Holocaust denier? What's his name? Uh, David, uh, I just forget his surname right now. He he denied the incinerators in Auschwitz, and he then in an Austrian jail for some months. All he did was express his own mind, his own opinion, which, by your definition and the West's definition, is freedom of speech. So
1: uh, I can no, he, no longer is hear anything. Which is go wrong. Yeah, go on. Sorry? No, I've got you. Go if any
9: right
1: so George if if you can enter
9: today a Christian sentiment you cannot express it as a freedom of speech. Oh, well
1: yeah, you but you can't uh, you you can't say that uh because some things are uh, not permitted, usually not by law, uh, but by by dignity, by self-respect, by uh, the prevailing culture, um, you can't say that because they are not permitted, that everything else uh, uh, shouldn't be permitted. You can't yourself live a double standard, Idris. Uh, the, no, I understand, the, you know uh, 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 For example, uh, in uh, Christian countries, France is not a Christian country, it's a secular country, but in Christian countries really? like this, it is absolutely routine and deplorable. Uh, to mock Christianity, to insult uh, Jesus and the prophets. It's absolutely, uh, in fact, you'd be laughed at if you defended the honor uh, of uh, the Messiah and the uh, prophets in Christian countries. Oh. Um, and uh, I, de- I deplore that. As a religious believer myself, I completely deplore that. Uh, but that's what happens. It's not that you're allowed to uh, satirize uh, Muhammad, but you're not allowed to satirize Jesus. Uh, In fact, you're allowed to satirize them all, and it is the prevailing orthodoxy that you should satirize uh, them all. Uh, But the issue issue of the Holocaust is this, uh, that there are people still alive today who survived the Holocaust. And for yes. people to make a living out of lying uh, that the Holocaust they know that they lived through never happened is just about the most repugnant thing I can imagine. There are I, there are millions of people whose parents, I, whose I aunts, agree with you, yeah, I, whose I, yeah. whose cousins were uh, uh, massacred in the gas chambers. So. It's partly a question of, of taste, isn't it Idris, partly a question of taste and morals, uh, that no one, no liar, no liar should make a living out of claiming that the Holocaust never happened, because it demonstrably did. Yes, of course he
9: did, I agree with that. I agree, six million people of Jewish ancestry were, were incinerated, and as were 500,000 Roma, yeah. but Still, it does not detract from the fact that David Irving, Irving in his son, yeah, that was in Britain though, not in France,
1: yeah, I, I, or was it Asia in Germany? Was, it, was it not in Germany that happened? Austria. Austria, Austria, yeah, yeah, Austria. well, of course, they do have David something Irving, the they, do, they do have something in particular to live down. Uh, Austria's greatest, well, greatest uh, triumph was persuading people that. Beethoven was Austrian and uh, Hitler was German. Idris, thanks for the call. The hour is late. Gloria is in Southport on the COVID-19. Go ahead, Gloria.
20: Hello. Um, Well, I do want to talk about COVID, but um, I just wanted to mention about the beheading of the teacher in France, George. Yes, go on. Um, According to the BBC report that I heard, it said that he'd asked all the Muslim students to leave the room. Yeah. But... um, the boys left, but the girls stayed. That's what I actually heard on the BBC. Mm. And then one of them told her father what you know what he'd shown them. Mm-hmm. Um, so there were Muslim students in the room.
1: Yeah, but there's there's I'm, a la- I, gr- I grant you, there's a lack of uh, clarity on that point. I'm just making the point that he did try to uh, avoid. Offending the Muslim students in the school whether he achieved that or not is another matter
20: Yes, he did definitely, Um, and I still find it hard to believe that creative people want to um, Make cartoons that are really so very offensive not just to Muslims, but to everybody Yeah, yeah, totally
1: vile. Charlie Hebdo's output is unutterably vile if uh, if the liberals that uh, cheer them knew how vile or they'd be embarrassed.
20: Absolutely, I think, I think so too. Now, the, the other reason is I phoned last week regarding I'm in, living Merseyside and I'm in the very high risk area. Yeah. Um, because of my age, I'm 80. Um, a lot of people of my generation and, and you know, around 50s and are becoming almost <laughs> resigned to the fact that they're going to end up dying of um, COVID. Because we don't have a Nightingale hospital in Liverpool. The nearest Nightingale hospitals are in Harrogate and Manchester. And our hospitals, as you've probably heard, are filling up fast.
1: Uh, it's bre- you're I- breaking my heart, Gloria. You're breaking <laughs> my heart. And I'm extremely angry about the place yes. we now are in. But the, the hour is such, I can't uh, stay with you. And not least because Norma in Bristol is always the last caller and I pray that she always will be. Go ahead, Norma.
10: Hello, George. Hi. Um, Like usual, not much time, but it's just a quick thought. Obviously, it's not to do with anything we've been talking about because i think mm. it's contrary. Mm. It's about music. Yeah. Now, on your moose extra, um, you do play music, which is good. And... My sons were quite pleased to hear about um, one or two of the people that were on. But anyway, the thing is, I'm going to say... I'll
1: have um, a new soundtrack this Wednesday. It's not the same songs. You'll get a new no. soundtrack this Wednesday. Go ahead, Good, Norma, but, go ahead.
10: But there this, this seems to be a class divide because, you know, you get everything from, like, you know, punk to classical. And maybe on the most slot, um, you could mix it a little bit with perhaps some nice classical just a little bit it's like you yeah, know, I know, you're, you know.
1: Uh, I know that you're a classical I, music woman
10: no I, i'm everything i yeah, mean I know, I know
1: i know it's great and uh, i myself played in a in an orchestra yeah uh i played the double bass in the saint cecilia orchestra so uh, yeah. and uh, in my car it's usually uh, classic FM that's on when, yeah, the, food, a when the football is on. They're,
10: yeah, they're a bit snobby in. a, a little bit little bit. But I'll tell you quickly because I know... Yeah, go on. I know that you're going to be finishing now. Yeah. Um, Puccini, like, if you had Pavarotti and Marilla Lufaini were singing Your Tiny Hand is Frozen or from Verdi, you could have um, The Peasants March from Nabucco. They're only short, but they're beautiful things when romantic. It's a date. Um,
1: it's a date, yeah, Norma. Great. I'll play I'll play that on Wednesday, uh, because I love both the pieces uh, that you mentioned, and uh, I have many uh, favorites uh, amongst classical music, but I've only got 45 seconds left to encourage you all, if you've enjoyed the show, to come back next week at the same time, same place. It's been marvelous for me, I hope it was for you, and if it was, bring another viewer and listener with you. I never thought I'd be reaching out for a two million audience, but I now am. So spread the word, please, about the mother of all talk shows if you found it useful. And if you've got a dollar, the price of a cup of coffee in a very cheap cafe, tune in on Wednesday for Motes Extra on my Patreon page. Until then, may God go with you all. Good night.